Are you K-Rad enough to flirt with an NPC barmaid? Are you elite enough to have a six-digit ICQ number? All this week on the Square Waves Podcast. Hello there, listeners. Welcome to the Square Wave FM podcast. Pleasure to have you with us as always. Um, my name is Brian. And I'm Chris, and you're listening to episode three. Episode three. Can't believe we made it as far as we did. I hope we got a heck of a lot more to go in the future. Uh, that how, would be awesome. How are things going for you this week, Chris? I'm doing pretty good. I've uh, been busy with my day job and... Also, kind of at night, thinking a lot about what to talk about for the future episodes. Um, I've got a massive list of stuff that we, at <laughs> some point, I hope we get to talk about. Um, and uh, how is your week going? My week is going well. Um, also busy with work and uh, had an extremely exciting uh, uh, turn of events. Oh, I think I might have lost you. Hello? Oh, hello? Oh, there you're, you're back. Okay. Uh, you. you you said extremely exciting turn of events. Oh, okay. Yes, extremely exciting turn of events this week. Um, my budgies, who have been getting very busy with each other these past couple of weeks or so, have uh, started <laughs> had started to produce eggs, and uh, so uh, the mommy laid five eggs, and uh, we held them up to the light to see which, if any, looked to be fertile, and we found one that was right. fertile, and so we uh, discarded the other ones and kept the fertilized one, and that egg has hatched, and now we have a teeny tiny, helpless, little, uh, featherless, hairless chick. That's amazing. Kind of booging around. She, uh, it, it's, uh, its home is in this little uh, hollowed-out concave coconut suspended from the top <laughs> of its cage. So it's just a teeny tiny, wow. super helpless little thing all i can do is peep and it uh, it does however have this uh overwhelming power to make me speak in a very high-pitched voice i can't resist it <laughs> so it's quite That's a cool. miraculous little critter it's uh starting to get some strength it uh, waddles around a little bit it can't quite lift its head off of the the floor but it's gotten to standing right. now and uh it's uh it really boogies left and right and it makes the teeny tiniest little cheeps and peeps so it's uh, a really amazing. miraculous thing incredible yeah, my uh, my girlfriend saw a picture of it, and she said it looked like a little piece of uh, a raw chicken breast. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. Well, maybe we'll maybe we'll name it salmonella or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How, how does it How does it eat? I mean, does it does the mom kind of feed it down its throat or? Oh yeah. So this is quite an amazing, uh, uh, quite an amazing chain of events, all uh, based on the instinct of these animals, who I'm sure you know don't remember when uh, their own parents fed them in this fashion, but uh, right. Mommy spends almost all of her time sitting on her chick in the coconut. She doesn't get out too much, just for a few minutes every oh, okay. day to stretch her wings. So Daddy goes down to uh, the food dish, uh, which we fill uh, with lots of healthy stuff, with like uh, vitamin-infused pellets and berries and stuff like that. And he uh, chows down on lots of it and gorges himself. And then he uh, jumps up to the coconut and uh, regurgitates for Mom right in her mouth. And then oh. mom gives this uh, secondhand double double regurgitated goodness to the little baby. That's beautiful. Thank you for the image. I um, know. It's a, it's it's beautifully <laughs> sickening, let me tell you. But, uh, that's that's you something budgies play... do. Is, uh, the regurgitating <laughs> is kind of a, a sign of affection and a proof that they can provide for each other. So they do it for each other 
Uh, oh, uh, really? Even yeah. when they don't have babies? Yeah, males to females and even females to females. They, uh, it, they only, Yeah, we have two females and one male, so... That's hot. So, so if you want an appropriate <laughs> show of affection, is to barf into your partner's uh, gullet. Very yeah, nice. That's right. Hey, I've seen it work. We have a <laughs> we have a successful coupling thanks to that romantic behavior. I will do that tonight, and okay. I'll let you know what happens next week. <laughs> All right. Best of luck to you. Bring a napkin. But <laughs> did you ever play? Um, did you ever play Simant? Oh yeah, I did. That involved some barfing, didn't it? Of some kind of yeah. like gelatinous ooze or something. Was it? Was that with the aphids? Uh, it was with the ants, actually. The um, the ants had this like I don't know about the Super Nintendo version, but I know the PC version for sure because I was obsessed with that game. Mm-hmm. Um, shout out to I think I think Ben three hundred four may have played Sim Ant, but I think he's more of a Sim Farm player. I I honestly can't remember. Hi Ben. Um, there has this great moment where if you're one of your ants is starving or sick you can go up and feed it and it'll barf up this little green pellet and i remember in the uh the the, the manual simant has this badass manual um and in the manual it has like this picture of two ants barfing into each other's mouths mm-hmm. and it says like trophallaxis and they said they talk about the process of like feeding each other sugars through the mouth and as soon as, soon as you said Burfs bar- barfing into each other's mouths. So that was like instantly the first thing I thought of. I, I instantly thought of a sound effect, which I think must have played when that happens in the yeah. game. Doesn't it go like bleh or something like that? Bleah! And it's like, <laughs> and it's like a, yeah, exactly. And it's like a PC speaker yeah. kind of like, yeah. Oh, that's funny. So you did play Cement on the PC? I either, I can't remember whether I played it at home or maybe at school. It might've played it on an Apple or a PC. I don't remember. Oh, that's right. There was, there was an Apple, there was a Macintosh version too. Um, mm. And I think the Mac version actually, actually, you know what? If I remember correctly, the PC and the Mac version both ran at fairly high res. Um, for they were like six forty by four eighty or whatever the Macintosh resolution was. But yeah, you're right about rem- that. It did, didn't it? And it only had like four or five colors or something. Exactly. I think it was it was a sixteen color game, or okay. at least for the PC. Oh, um, okay. Before we get into what we've played, I want to add a correction, um, and also. Um, I'll do this before we um, before we listen to um, the wonderful voicemail we got from Joe Mastriani of UMB Podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got a correction. So, was it last episode or the episode before? I couldn't figure out whether 640 by 400 16 color is an MCGA or a VGA mode. Oh, right. I, don't know if you remember I think you said 640 yeah. by 480. Yeah, and and I was like, so I was super confused, and I know I had this argument with somebody at some point, and I think the way it works is 640 by 400, 16 color is a supported MCGA mode, so that's multicolor graphics array, um, which kind of was like an extension of CGA, basically. It just took CGA and amped it up so it was capable of more colors, etc., VGA is also capable of that too, but it's not a very common VGA mode, so... Um, I think I mentioned that um, it was either Oregon Trail or um, uh, Railroad, Railroad Tycoon Deluxe had that. But I think, now that we mention it, Sim Ant also ran in that weird resolution, which was 640 by 400 or 640 by 480 by 16 color. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and it's, it's a, I don't know, anybody who's seen it, it looks, it looks really, really weird because everything tends to get stretched out. Um, and it doesn't look quite right. The aspect ratio always looks a little goofy. Um, but you know, anyway, it's just really weird seeing stuff at fairly high res in 16 color mode. So 
I do seem to remember reading something not so long ago about... I think it was related to Adventure Game Studio, AGS. Uh, do you remember what the resolution wow. is for that one? The low resolution? Is that 640 uh, by 400? A AGS actually runs, starts at the, its lowest at 320 by 200. Aha. Uh -huh. um, and then you can jack it up from there. And I think AGS at its highest in its kind of standard format is actually 1024 by 768. Um, and after that, um, you need to be running custom, um, custom ports of the AGS source. Okay, so 320 by 200. Yes. That was, I remember That's... that being some kind of a problematic um, uh, resolution because the aspect ratio assumed that the pixels were rectangular or something like that. And so... That's right, exactly. So 320 by 200 is technically a 16 by 10 um, resolution, which is basically what an iPad, um, uh, an iPad aspect ratio. So it blows up perfectly on an iPad, but on a standard monitor, it actually looks really wonky. Um, so 320 by 240 is 4 to 3, which is the standard monitor size we had back in the 90s. Mm -hmm. um, so, so 320 by 240 was more of the normal thing. And then 320 by 200 was very uncommon, um, or let's say l less common um, for games, that's for sure. Okay, yeah, yeah. My last monitor was 16 by 10 aspect ratio. It was a widescreen monitor. Right. And I'm thinking, exactly. why is this Why is this DOS, screen, uh, why is this DOS game in widescreen? And, uh, exactly. Did, why, why would no other one be? I just couldn't understand it. So I still don't understand don't... it fully. But, cause the, I don't know we, either. I... Yeah, we, did, we didn't have widescreen monitors until very recently. So I, I don't quite know how that, how that works out. I should look into it. I don't know either, and um, it's it's actually a really odd thing. I was trying to think of games off the top of my head that would run at 320 by 200. Um, the only thing I can think of is, is it possible that, because, you know, like, this, now we're getting into, like, super hardcore hardware territory. Um, I think it's possible that, for instance, 320 by 200 might have been a CGA mode that supported more colors at a lower resolution or something. I um, think CGA video graphics adapter were only capable of four colors the the secondary yeah, colors color. cyan magenta yellow and black exactly although i am this is actually on um anatoly's podcast one of the episodes with jim leonard um talking about i think it's the early ibm pc um he actually talks about a cga mode which uses six colors um which is kind of unbelievable um but there hmm. is definitely a cga mode which is capable of six colors and um yeah trickster kind of goes into unbelievable amounts of detail of how they pull that off with certain CGA tricks. But anyway, mm. we're, we're getting into, yeah, dangerous territory. We probably should talk about, um, uh, respond to Joe's voicemail. Okay, let's very gladly do that. Uh, shout out to Joe Mestriani, who was uh, kind enough once again to uh, send us a uh, voicemail. And as always, we invite you to do the same. Please contact us at uh, squarefm at demodulated.com. And awesome. uh, we'd love to uh, hear what you've got to say, or you can uh, type something to us and we'll read it on the air. So uh, take it away, Mr. Joe. Hey, guys. Joe here again. Uh, just want to, uh, before I begin, apologize for the quality of these. I record them in my car, so uh, there's obviously going to be a little bit of background noise and whatever. But uh, you guys are talking about stuff that's, like, totally right up my alley. I spend way too much time on BBSs, uh, you know, probably in in through early high school, kind of into the internet days. Um, and frankly, for, for a while, I actually preferred BBSs to the internet. But like you guys said, because of the hominess and the homebrewness and the community, which the early internet sort of lacked. But, uh, but two stories, uh, the first of which was uh, 
about paging the sysop. I and I really liked the whole thing, paging the sysop, and, and you know they would break into chat with you, and, and it was kind of like the voice of God was uh, was coming down to uh, to talk to you, the mere lowly peasant BBS user. But uh, there were a few BBSs where you know we became friends with the sysops. Uh, for me, it was at the time uh, BBSs around Montreal in the 514 area code. And uh, there was one or two guys that we knew, and uh, if you actually hit page the sysop, their computer would emit this horrible alert sound, depending on the BBS software they were using, and that would come out of the PC speaker. And uh, so we'd get on like super late at night, kind of, you know, one, two in the morning. And, you know, we were in school and whatever, so, you know, we there was less consequence to staying up later. And these guys were older, they were probably in, you know, university or whatever, or maybe they had jobs. So, you know, at two in the morning, they'd be asleep and we'd hit page the sysop and we'd wake them up and there'd be some angry posts the next day from the sysop saying, you know, don't page the sysop at all hours because you woke up my wife and she's angry at me. And uh, so yeah, that was just uh, a little bit of fun. And uh, the second story is with regard to uh, quick mail and the quick packets. Uh, I got in on that after a while because you know, I had parents, and they didn't like me using our one phone line to uh, to waste time on BBSs. But uh, one cool thing about uh, at least the software that I was using, and I can't remember it, the name of it for the life of me, whatever the quick reader I had was, but uh, it, it had the concept of taglines. And uh, the taglines were basically, like, you know, now if you have, like, free email or whatever, it puts a little ad on the bottom, or some people close off their emails with little inspirational quotes or whatever so taglines the tagline file was basically this this i guess line delimited uh line break delimited text file where you put in quotes and things like that and for us you know they were quotes from different books or or you know inside jokes with our friends or inside jokes from certain bbs's and those taglines would you could either choose which one to to attach to your post or you could have it set to random so we had this list of probably like a thousand taglines and uh, for some reason, it's dumb when I look back on it now, but for some reason it was a huge deal to us at the time to gather as many taglines as we could to have kind of this big random pool to choose from to make, a, I don't know, make ourselves look smart or something. But, uh, but yeah, those are, those, those are my memories of uh, at least the portions of BBSing you talked about in this episode. So uh, that's that. Thanks a lot, guys. Keep it up. Really, really, again, awesome show. And uh, I enjoy... I. I think I enjoy this episode even more than I enjoyed your first. So, uh, yeah, keep it up. Thanks a lot. Yeah, thank you very, very much for the uh, for the stories about your experiences, Joe. Those are those are love, terrific love stories. Love stories. Love these stories. <laughs> I'm I'm kind of reminded. I think I'm thinking I'm remembering something about taglines. I don't remember whether that was if that was something that was just on screen in the quick reader, or if that was something like a randomized signature that you could append to the bottom of your messages, sort of like how emails nowadays, they say like sent by iPhone or something, it would add a little something yeah. on there. I just don't remember. It almost rings a bell, or maybe I'm, maybe my brain is just trying to make me seem more elite than I, than I really am. It doesn't actually remember. Yeah. I, I didn't, I didn't use quick mail myself. I, in fact, the last episode when we talked about it, I was really shocked at finding out what it actually did. Um, but, yeah, the modern equivalent I like to think about is um, the signatures you see typically on web forums. Um, that seems to be like a direct descendant of it. Um, people who have like that, you know, that horizontal rule at the bottom of each message, then they have some like terribly lame, annoying kind of um, code at the bottom. That seems to be like straight out of the quick mail taglines uh, history. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
So very, thank very you so much for that, Joe. That was that was a, a great couple of stories. We love to hear stuff like yeah, that. Exactly, and and actually r- related to the page sysop thing, um, that beep, um, the page sysop beep was an option you could turn on or off in um, BBS software like Renegade uh, server software like Renegade, um, Iniquity, Citadel. All of them had some sort of ability to bleep the PC speaker or the PC beeper. Um, the thing I'm trying to figure out is why the Frick, did the sysop have it enabled? I mean, <laughs> he must have known that this is going to cause a problem at some point. I guess so. Maybe, I can't imagine all sysops went through all the options. I mean, me, if I get a server, if I can, I go through every single option <laughs> yeah, in order exactly. until, until I've seen them all. But uh, I yeah, guess I remember... there must have been sysops of varying uh, uh, ability. Yeah, and also too, probably it's probably pretty exciting to get a page from one of your your, your users and and you know saying like okay I'm coming, um, kind of thing. And you know anybody who listens to this podcast who's familiar with DOS gaming, um, you can probably remember just how goddamn loud that PC speaker was. For the longest time, I had a computer that you could not change the volume of that stupid PC speaker, so it would just beep at its loudest level, like at maximum every time. I don't think you um, could change the volume of that PC speaker on pretty well any machine, if I'm not mistaken. You know what's funny? I can think of one exception. I had a, at the time, which I thought was a badass computer, turns out it was a total piece of crap. It was an Amstrad 286, 8 megahertz. Mm-hmm. Um, and Amstrad, for anybody who's not familiar with the company, was a British, I believe, uh, company who, for some reason, uh, you might dig this story, man. Um, <laughs> they shipped computers from Britain reconfigured them with different AC adapters or, you know, different power supplies inside um, and shipped them to Canada. And so they shipped this 286 and I think they might have even had a 386, but you wouldn't believe who sold it. Uh, There's a furniture store uh, chain in Canada called The Brick. I knew you were going to say The Brick. (laughs) (laughs) Did you actually ever see computers for sale at The Brick? I think I saw commercials for it or a print ad or something. I, I, some... (laughs) Part of my brain knows that the brick sold computers for some period of time. Oh, it was like, what a terrible idea. It's a, you know, a furniture store that, first of all, already sells crappy furniture, but now they've decided to sell crappy computers. <laughs> this would be like, you know, in 1989, 1990, it's one of those commercials where it sees like one night only, one night only, $24.99 for a leather couch, that kind of crap, right? Very urgent. Um, yeah, very urgent. And like, they always have like, I don't know how to describe it, like those comic, comic book kind of like explosive dialogue things around everything so it's oh, like yeah, the 20... batman punching a guy kind of sa- visual yeah, sound effect things <laughs> exactly and it was like and they started selling computers so one day um my mom decided i love you mom this is like the best thing anybody's ever done um my mom went to the brick with my sister and i was at home and i didn't really know what was happening she just said we're gonna get something special and it was around like late 1989 possibly early 1990 she um she came home with this this Amstrad, all these boxes that said Amstrad. I had no idea what it was. Pulled it out. And it was an Amstrad 286, 8 megahertz, 640K RAM. And I actually had a 30 meg hard drive, which was a big deal at the time. Um, and ripped it out of its box, set it all up. The thing actually had a volume dial for the PC speaker. So I lied. Um, wow. <laughs> yeah. And, it, and the volume dial was so important because you'd be playing like... I'm trying to think, um, like Out of This World, and Out of This World had some some sampled sounds in it, and you'd be able to turn it all the way down to zero so you could actually get away with playing the game after 10 o'clock at night at my house. 
Hmm. Um, yeah, so that that was actually my only time in my whole life I've seen a computer with a PC speaker that you could adjust the volume on. Oh, that's <laughs> awesome! I've I've never known any any PC speaker that only had uh, the, you know it was cranked up to eleven, and that's all. That's the yeah, only option you exactly. had. Exactly. Excruciating. <laughs> Because it's it's one louder than ten, yeah, exactly. That's um, right. Well, it definitely was. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I, I totally, I totally sympathize with any BBS sysop that um, you know had their speaker speaker permanently on eleven and forgot to disable it in software. <laughs> I, I wouldn't put it past my younger self to page one sysop over and over if I had something oh, really urgent to tell them. So no doubt I made them and possibly their immediate families furious with me. Maybe if I'm uh, lucky, it didn't log who made the the call, but something tells me it probably does. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's awesome. So thanks so much, Joe. That's that's a very uh, that's a very common story, I think. But I'm so glad you reminded all all of us, and especially that you know it managed to wake up the Sasop's wife. <laughs> oh yeah, thanks a lot, Joe. Also, thanks to uh, Trolls and to Amirat Akago, who both uh, oh, messaged cool. us on uh, Twitter to uh, say how much they're enjoying the podcast. So we appreciate the feedback so much, and it's great to have you guys aboard. Fantastic, and I hope uh, I hope I've now I, I've now improved myself in Troll's eyes that I've actually finished Monkey Island one with minimal amount of cheating. I think so. Although, oh crap, I I, I didn't come prepared. He corrected us on something that we said in the last episode. Oh, damn! I don't, I don't remember what it was now. So, oh he, no he problem. Was, we, we can totally right too. So I, I'll, I'll give him <laughs> credits, but uh, can't can't quite remember the details. Well, thank you so much, Nuts. Trolls. I'll, we'll hopefully track that down before the end of this episode, and we can we can give you proper credit for correcting us, because um, you are the Space Quest historian and uh, also a historian of many other things uh, uh, PC-DOS-related. We really appreciate it. He is indeed. I'll, I'll see if I can uh, track that down by the end of the episode. Sure. Yeah. So, uh, before we get into our topic this week, I think it's uh, your turn this time to tell us what you've been playing this week. Okay, I'll keep it short. I've been playing more of Broken Sword 1, um, which is actually Circle of Blood in North America for anybody, any of our European listeners. Um, it did get renamed when it got released in North America, which is really weird, um, at least in its first DOS release, uh, DOS slash Windows release, I can't remember. Um, and I've been playing more of that with my girlfriend, and I'm liking it. It's really good. I got to the part now where we are in... Uh, Ireland, I think, at an Irish bar, at an Irish pub. Um, got a little annoyed where I'm in one of those situations where you have to talk to four different NPCs, and every time you talk to an NPC, it brings up a new conversation item, and now you need to visit the other three to bring it up with them. So you get into this, like, I don't know what to call it, dependency hell. Um, for anybody who <laughs> knows their Windows and Linux and Unix problems, um, you have these, like, interrelated dependencies uh, in conversation trees, which gets pretty damn annoying. Um, mm. Feels like it's a way just to stretch out gameplay. I'm not complaining. It's just more of one of those things. And then we hit a fantastic cutscene where one of the uh, NPCs was hit by a car, which was actually quite dark, um, considering, um, you know, I, I didn't really think of this as a very dark game. So really enjoying Broken Sword 1. Um, both of us are. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Um, my girlfriend grabbed The Last Express. Um, have you ever played The Last Express? Only a little bit. Why don't you talk a little bit about it first, and then I'll, I'll tell you why I can't kind of sink my teeth into it. Yeah, sure, for sure. Um, so The Last Express, for anybody who hasn't played this, um, is a first-person animated adventure game for... Well, it was originally released for Windows, I believe. Windows and DOS, actually. 
Um, but eventually got a re-release on iOS, uh, potentially Android too, but I think it's iOS. And it's a fantastic game written and directed and created by Jordan Mechner and his team at Smoking Car, uh, Smoking Car Productions. And it's basically um, a... Um, uh, what's the name of that mystery writer from the 1920s? Uh, blah, 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 blah. Agatha Christie. Her name. Agatha Christie. It's an Agatha Christie um, whodunit murder story set on the Orient Express in the, I believe, in the 20s or 30s. Um, actually, you know what? It's just prior to the the um, kind of World War, so I don't quote me on that. I'm sure I got the date wrong there. And I think my experience, we're loving it so far. Um, it's a very minimalistic kind of adventure game interface where you walk around on this train, you talk to people, and my favorite part of the game, you basically talk to people, there's very few inventory items involved. Um, you talk to people, overhear conversations. If you're somebody who likes the idea of traveling in Europe, I'm all over it for that reason. I love that. It's very romantic, and it feels like you're, you're thrown into this very romantic pre-World War One setting. Um, it's got plenty of problems, I'm sure, that people pick out, but my favorite part of this game is the fact that the whole game plays out in real time. And um, so normal adventure games are triggered by, um, you know, um, events, and these events trigger other events, and so you, you know, deal with dependencies. Um, ba um, basically, that's how most adventure games are designed. So one thing leads to another thing, which leads to another thing, and then sometimes there's a bit of a branching narrative. In this game, what happens is the game, the, the world continues on, on each NPC is on its own schedule, so things just continue with or without your help. And um, what you can do mostly is overhear conversations or talk to NPCs, and you can do things in almost any order you want to. And this basically allows you to explore the game at your own pace. There are a few set pieces where something, unless you do something before a certain point on the train trip, something bad's going to happen or the game's going to be over. But for the most part, you've got a lot more freedom than the average adventure game, and I really love it for that. Um, uh -huh. what, what was your experience like? Okay, so my experience, I didn't quite make it anywhere near as far as what you were describing to have learned some of oh. the lessons that you have. Um, for me, basically, so I, I, I would, I'm not the kind of a person that would consider himself to be OCD. However, right. <laughs> however, your favorite thing about this game is the thing that I dread in this game, the fact that it is uh. played out in real time. And so <laughs> as charming as it is to think that you are kind of, you know, it reveled up in this story that happens with or without you. I right. cannot shake the feeling like wherever I am, I am missing something important. Yes. And so there's got to, there's got to be a word for the kind of anxiety that that produces because I don't know, simultaneity and anxiety or something, because that's, I, I totally get it. I, know, I totally like, get I'm that like feeling. Cursed as a fourth dimensional being or something like that. I need to be able to be in more than one time at once or more than one place at once or something to set me at ease in order to play this brilliant game. So uh, it's really good to know that there is some freedom and that you can kind of uh, things will be waiting for you if you don't do them right away. And I mean, it's kind of not really it's not really something I usually have a problem with. I am not a, the kind of a person who has a problem with playing a game more than once to get a fuller experience out of its subsequent plays. Yeah. Definitely. So I don't know what it is. I really ought to give this a chance because it's super charming. The art is just magnificently beautiful. I don't know if it's like traced or rotoscoped or what you call it exactly, but it's like uncannily uh, realistic looking and almost kind of a sepia-toned, old-timey sort of a, a, a tinge. 
very exactly. very pretty and like i i would love to spend time in a place like this there's just some nagging <laughs> voice inside of me that uh <laughs> that's telling me that i'm whatever i'm doing i'm doing it wrong i'm the, the right oh, guy totally. in the wrong place yeah no I, I i totally get it and there's some wonderful articles out there for anybody who wants to learn about um how the last express was made which um you know it did it was rotoscoped um at first they tried to actually develop an automatic rotoscoping system that would um, kind of lift the character um, because they were filmed on green screens most of the time and it would try to lift the character automatically off of the um, background but unfortunately the developer Jordan Mechner famous for Prince of Persia, Karateka, uh, those kinds of games um, he said that didn't work so they actually ended up hand rotoscoping I think a huge chunk of the game like a, a very very large chunk and um, I, I think the results are spectacular. Um, and it's definitely got that, um, you feel like you're stepping into a classical painting in some ways. And I just love that. And against pre-rendered backgrounds, which honestly look great. Um, they've, they've withstood the test of time. And it all um, really gels to weather together so well. Like I, you, you can hardly guess that it's uh, that it's green screened characters exactly. superimposed on something pre-rendered. It looks just very in place. It, yeah, it, it's, it's really wonderful. weird because, yeah, you would think that a pre-rendered 3D background would look really jarring against 2D um, animated characters, but for whatever reason, it just, it looks fine. Um, mm -hmm. But I'm, I'd be happy to hear any other listener feedback. I know, for instance, that our friend, friend of the podcast, Francisco Gonzalez um, of the Blue Cup Tools podcast, um, Francisco mentioned um, that he was actually nonplussed by it. He thought it was okay. Um, but he wasn't so impressed by the the, the idea of the real time gameplay. Um, I I've played it so many times now that I am more and more impressed by the real time gameplay every time. Um, got a little story about it. One one part of the game, you can wait until two passengers are having coffee or eating dinner together. Uh, it's this two ladies traveling together. They're around the same age. One's French. One's English. And you can, by the way that they talk and, and gossip with each other, you can kind of surmise that there's some sort of brooding relationship there, but you don't really know what it is, or sorry, brewing relationship. Um, what you can do is, I'm going to, this is a spoiler alert, um, but it's not a big spoiler. It's just one of those little tiny side things you can do in the game. You can crawl out your compartment's window, crawl along the side of the train and sneak into their compartment and read her personal diary. Hmm. Um, <laughs> and this like really appeals to the um, um, voyeuristic side of me because in her diary, in the French uh, French Companion's diary, she talks about this basically romance and, you know, um, interest, interest she's got in her traveling companion. And it's not even clear if her traveling companion even knows she's harboring these romantic feelings for her. So it's, um, <laughs> it, it, there's a lot of payoff to the game to basically sneaking around and being a pervert. And, you know, that's great. I, uh, <laughs> oh, what does it, is it, uh, kind of apparent that the uh, French traveler is sort of speaking in double entendres that have a, an ulterior meaning based oh. on what you know about her? Oh, definitely. She calls her, her traveling companion, her seductress. Um, so <laughs> yeah, it's, it's uh, pretty saucy stuff for a pre-World War One game. Um, I do say. <laughs> I, I, I was, I was very enthralled. And the great thing is if you come back multiple times, she actually adds new entries to it each day on the train. Huh. So obviously, you know, I'm 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 a very disturbed individual that enjoys reading people's private diaries, <laughs> um, and and the whole game is littered with opportunities like that. And I had other 
because my partner's playing it and I'm just basically backseat driving, um, helping out with hints wherever I can, she's actually playing the game in a completely different way than I played it, which I was like, oh my God, you can actually do completely different things. Um, my thing was to actually hide out when the police come by my apartment, my compartment to see if I've, um, you know, um, if I'm on board. I used to crawl out the window and hang on the side of the train while the police are checking out my compartment. But her thing was, she's like, well, why would I hang on the side of the train? I'm just going to lock the door. And if you lock the door and hide in the bathroom, they just give up and keep walking. So <laughs> yeah, it's That's it, excellent. It, yeah. You can hide in somebody else's compartment. There's like many ways. I love that. There's many ways to solve each, um, each puzzle, which is fantastic. That's really quite something. Well, you really have to hand it to uh, Jordan Mechner. I really wish that he had created more original properties and kind of started more series instead of. Well, I don't know if he really, if he really grappled onto any series quite so much as uh, as with uh, Prince of Persia. Did he? Was he responsible for the second Prince of Persia? Yeah, or at least for the subsequent actually, ones. Interestingly enough, um, yes, I just finished reading the Prince of Persia diaries. Maybe that's why. Oh, I, I read it that. too. Amazingly good read. Oh, I, I really highly recommend it for anybody who wants to read it. And also the Karateka Diaries are very, very good too. Um, and if, if you have had a chance to read those, they're Jordan at a very different time in his life, um, basically just starting university. Um, but yeah, he, Prince of Persia too, he was the lead designer and basically director of the whole project. And um, I love this. He basically wrote and created most of this while he was living in Paris at the time. And his team at Broderbund or Broderbund, I'm not really sure how to say that, um, in, <laughs> as good as I in can do uh, it. California, they um, they basically did everything. They did the arts, all the programming, etc., etc. And so he is responsible for it, but he was a little less hands-on. He didn't you know, code the whole thing by himself this time. And then Prince of Persia 3D, all of that stuff became, you know... Um, um, licensed, and he never was involved in into it until Sands of Time, I think. Okay, I was hoping you were going to say that, because that's quite a brilliant game. It is. I, I You know what? I, I got it when it came out for the Xbox, and I thought it was a really underrated game. I thought it was fantastic. Was it underrated? I think it was pretty, pretty acclaimed oh, and sold very well. I oh, think. good. I'd because, like to hope yeah, so. Yeah, I think you might be right, because I think it might have came out in the um, one of those, like, what is it, Platinum Editions or something. Um but yeah, I'm, I, at the time, I remember thinking, oh, Prince of Persia 3D again? No way. And it works really, really well. Because 3D flopped, didn't it? I think that was... I didn't play that one, but I don't think it sold at all. I don't think it was well-received. Uh, yeah, I, I'm really lucky to have a copy of that, actually. Um, just just to be able to say I own Prince of Persia 3D. But that game is terrible, yeah. It's hmm. it's like Tomb Raider um, Prince of Persia, and it does not work. Oh. The controls are awful. But yeah, so um, yeah, definitely Mechner's been involved in that, and... Not that I'm like trying to push his stuff, but he also, well, he I think he might have done the screenplay for the terrible Prince of Persia movie, uh, oh, which really? I avoided. Yeah, I think he might have done that. He's quite the talented screenwriter, but I think he bit off more than he could chew with that project. I didn't see that he... movie, and it seems like the kind of a story that really, how do you, how do you screw it up? It's just like the the guy rescuing the princess, more or less. Yeah, well, I think that's maybe the problem with the movie. Oh. <laughs> it's like, that's that's all it is. Uh, and plus, Jake Gyllenhaal, like, massively ripped, and he looks ridiculous. Yeah. Um, yeah, so he did that, and then he did something fantastic last year. It's a graphic novel called Templar. Have you heard about this? No. Oh, man. I, I couldn't recommend this more. Um, he worked with a team of 
French artists, uh, I think a, a husband-wife team, and he did the Knights Templar story from the perspective of the Templars in a graphic novel form. <laughs> and I I can only, I think this, I, I'm not a comic book guy, uh, out myself here, I'm not a comic book guy, I'm not into comics, um, but I thought this was fantastic, it's got a great sense of humor, and it tells the Templar story, kind of the Holy Grail, Holy Blood thing, from a much more believable historical perspective, and it's got an awesome sense of humor. Sounds terrific. Well, I'll take a look at it, and maybe I'll stick something about this in the show notes. Because yeah, Jordan oh, Mechner, sure. he's. I didn't. I wonder whether he was responsible then for the, uh, the fantastic dialogue in Sands of Time, because I oh, know that he's a movie I'm, guy. I that that would make sense because yeah, his his dialogue in, um, The Last Express, I think, is some of the best dialogue I've ever seen written in an adventure game. Oh wow. Well, I'm uh, I'm I'm rooting for the guy. I'm hoping that he's responsible for all that good stuff because yeah, the, it's sure. yeah, re- really engaging stuff. Like the the sense of time, I just remember so fondly just because of the back and forth between the prince and the princess. Yeah. And the prince is this like arrogant, brash, uh, snooty <laughs> fellow, and the princess doesn't uh, take any flack from him. So it's just exactly a lot of... that sounds that sounds very Mechnerasque, and that's exactly how um, uh, Templar's written too. Okay, oh, I'll check that out for sure. That sounds terrific. Cool. And if you guys have any stories uh, about any of the Jordan Mechner games, we'd love to hear them. I, I'd love to hear anybody who's played Karateka. I'm sure we'll hear from a few people who owned old 86 DOS machines or Commodore 64s or Apple IIe's. Or if you've played Prince of Persia, Prince of Persia 2, Pop 3D, <laughs> I'd, I'd love to hear some stories. So please send those in. By all means, please do, and I totally recommend his design journals for um, Oh yeah, Karateka and for Prince of Persia, because not only does he speak a whole lot about the process of putting these games together, he also speaks a lot, very earnestly and kind of self-deprecatingly sometimes, about <laughs> his life and his tribulations and trying to fit in with his... Uh, with his groups and with his uh, companies and the exactly. things he's frustrated with, the things he excels at. So it's it's very enjoyable just hearing the narrative of his life. He's a terrific writer and yeah, it's a real is. page turner. And it's amazing to me that, you know, he was, you know, started some of these at 16, 17 years old, writ, wrote them all the way up until I, at least The Last Express. Um, he hasn't published that book yet, but uh, at least as far as I know, he hasn't published that book yet. Um, and it's amazing to me that, you know, a 16, 17-year-old is so deeply involved in games development and marketing and knows so much about how to get a certain percentage out of his publisher. It's it's fantastic stuff for anybody out there who develops games. Mm-hmm. Interesting stuff about the uh, early days of uh, publishers as well, relations exactly. between publishers and developers. Very true, very true. Mm-hmm. So what have you been playing? That's, that's my list. I'm going to cut it short for me. Okay. Uh, so, um, I guess before I talk about the other, the other monumental things that were re-released this week, um, I have an yes. update on my Euro Truck Simulator <laughs> adventure. Please, so, I love that game. Oh man. Well, so last time I tried it was about two weeks prior when I was fiddling around with my webcam. And I, as, as I mentioned on the podcast earlier, uh, my webcam kind of glitched out and I took a turn a little bit too sharp and uh, <laughs> winded up on my side, screeching along the uh, highways of Germany or something like that. Right. So I promptly alt F4 and I'm like, okay, maybe if I if I cancel this out really quickly, it won't save my progress. So uh... finally worked up the courage to uh, log in again a couple of days late, uh, a couple of weeks later. And lo and behold, there I was on my side with like a highly oh, no. flammable 
cargo trail trailer. <laughs> I think I was hauling, I don't know, fireworks, I think is what I was <laughs> hauling. So boy, was I lucky that I didn't become one myself. Well done, well done. <laughs> I know. Ugh, so I had to call for some sort of roadside assistance, which had a cost of its own. I took a right. look at the diagnostics of my truck, and it was like 45% damaged or something, which is oh, by far the most damage I had ever incurred. And not only wow. that, but my cargo was damaged as well. To some right. degree, I, which means I assume that I have to pay fireworks for it. do not play well with overturning and and exploding. Yeah, it it may surprise you to hear that they are highly perishable goods. So <laughs> they they don't exactly appreciate in value when you scrape them around and jostle them. So I had to pay for the difference of that. So that was wow. an expensive trip that uh, did not exactly make me money. I had to pay about half of the money that I had to fix up my truck. It was like forty or fifty thousand dollars. Usually oh, my maintenance is like eight hundred dollars after several trips, but this was a nasty wow. one. So that's terrible. Until I uh until I uh build up my hacking prowess like uh our good buddy Joe and uh work something uh <laughs> some kind of a better head tracking solution with the uh face track no IR uh yeah. free open source software. I have just taken to not using that anymore. So good lesson learned. <laughs> yes. So that's my exciting Euro Truck Simulator tale come to a close for now. Um the next thing that I played this week, which I had no idea was going to be re-released, was Deja Vu. Do you oh. have any familiarity with the series? You wouldn't believe this. I was just listening to your episode of DOS Nostalgia podcast where you and Anatoly talk about Deja Vu and the PC speaker. Oh, we did, didn't we? Yeah. So I, I'm, I was out shoveling snow outside and like an hour ago. And you guys were just talking about it. And I'm like, huh, I've never played that game. So can you tell everyone, in case they haven't played it, what Deja Vu is about? Okay, so Deja Vu, it's a, it's kind of an interesting game in its presentation. It's a, it's a murder mystery detective side of, kind of a story where you are a person who has lost his memory. You have to discover who you are. You kind of wake up in a house. Okay. And uh, someone has been killed, and you have to... I haven't gotten too far in it. I know Anatoly is an authority gotcha. on this series, but uh, all that I've gleaned from it really is that you're sort of trying to figure out who you are and who got killed and why, and uh, uh, and try to make it through the game without getting killed yourself, either by your own hand or clumsiness gotcha. or by someone uh, chasing after you. So, Is it like a traditional 2D point-and-click adventure? It is definitely not traditional. Um, it's oh, a very strange cool. interface. Um, you kind of get around... You get around your environment, I would say similar to Last Express or Mist or something like that, in that it's a okh. first-person uh, kind of screen-by-screen uh, screen navigation, ah. so you don't necessarily walk around in a grid or something like you would in right. an RPG like right. I'm so older. Right, so kind of node-based movement. Node-based, that's, right, yeah. that's the right way to put cool. it. So um, you have a main window that shows that part of the screen and it, that window is resizable and draggable every oh, element really? on your screen is resizable and draggable which is extremely strange because there's That's not wild a whole lot of benefit to it i guess unless you want to customize it yourself however i don't really see right. any way of locking any of those windows and so i right. made plenty of mistakes and putting a window on top of another one and not being <laughs> sufficiently familiar with the interface to know what happened to this thing or what i was supposed to do nice. very peculiar so you can that put objects bizarre. into your. It's very bizarre, very bizarre. So you can like drag an item from the main window into your inventory if you want to take right. it. There's a button called self. It's just like a square button that says the word self on it, and so okay. 
uh, I'm guessing that you can either, I think you right-click that or something if you want to open up your inventory, and I'm guessing like if Uh. you have an apple or something, maybe you drag it onto self to eat it. I'm not (laughs) totally sure. That is strange. uh, Oh, you just cut out for a second there. Hello, hello. Brian! Oh, hello. Oh, you're back. There you go. Stupid mic. All right, so it's, uh, it's two or three bucks on Steam. And I do recommend having a look at it. The Steam version includes... I don't know what the systems are, but there is a monochrome version and a color version. Um, I've only played it in monochrome. The first time I played this game... I think I played it in monochrome. The first time I played this game was on Windows 3.1. Oh, Um, wow. And I think there was an NES version as well, which I hadn't tried, but in my mind's eye, I can kind of picture a cartridge for it. So... It includes both a monochrome and a color version. I've just been playing it in the monochrome version. Or I did for about 45 minutes or so, and then I like fell into a sewer and couldn't swim and died and lost all my progress. <laughs> so I thought I'd call it a day there. So, uh, so I'll put not, some more time into it. Interesting. So it's not really a remake. It's just a re-release on Steam? Yeah, I would say so. It's a re-release, and it works on modern systems. So Very that's nice. the best that most people would ask for. So that's actually a good lead-in then to the last game that I'll talk about that I played this week, uh, which would be Grim Fandango Remastered, as it Aha. is called. I Just can't released wait to hear by about Double this. Fine. Oh, so um, when it comes to remakes, I suppose different people have different ideas of what they might uh, what they might like out of it. Some people want it to be, you know, new voices, new uh, right, new art being drawn. Um, maybe new puzzles and areas put in. That's, I guess, all of those things together is how I would describe the Leisure Suit Larry uh, re-release that came out, okay. uh, was it last year? Did you try that one, yeah. by the way? The Leisure Suit no, Larry? What, I, what you did you think what? of it? I oh. didn't get the chance to play that one. It was one of the ones I was considering kickstarting, and then I kind of fell off my radar. I don't think I kickstarted it, but I bought it on the opening day, and it was okay. okay. Um, I, it was okay. So um, it uh, they really took a lot of liberties. They were true to the original t- for the most part, but they redid the graphics. They had voices, and they added some new areas and some new characters. And um, I don't really know whether it felt cohesive. I played the original of that game enough to for, yeah. for anything new to kind of feel like a, some outside element. I see. So, um, so it kind of stood out. It stood out when they tried to introduce new uh, voices for the characters and stuff. Not only the voices, but also the people and their motivations and what you have to do to oh. solve the problems or to proceed. Like, there was oh, wow. a thing where you had to... I don't remember what it was exactly, but uh, are you familiar with the Larry 1? <laughs> okay, can I, can I tell you a story? It's going to derail a bit. Sure. All right, so um, I do have plenty of experience with Leisure Suit Larry 1 mm-hmm. um, in two, two different forms. One was in 1989, uh, my father was building uh, somebody's home way up north, and I went along with him. He was building, actually, it was a, how was I going to put it? He was rebuilding the home uh, right beside it. They were going to move the house like 500 feet over. And in this person's house, uh, I was only like 10 years old, and they said, well, you know, come with your dad to work. And my dad said, well, I don't need you to work around me, so why don't you go inside the house and play so I went inside of this client's house, and upstairs they had a Tandy 1000, the original Tandy 1000 that only had the five and a quarter inch disk drive. Huh. And I thumbed around in their disk pile, and there was one that just said LSL. And I mm. thought, I don't know what that is. Booted it up. Sure enough, it was Leisure Suit Larry 1. But the problem was, I was 10 years old, and I had no clue how to get past the 
um, the uh, copyright, uh, sorry, copy protection checks, the age protection checks. Right. Um, I had no idea how to solve the the problem, uh, solve any of the puzzles. So I probably spent three weeks of one summer trying to crack the Leisure Suit Larry intro as a 10-year-old, and I never managed to do it. I would get one out of three right or whatever it was, and I could never get past it. So ah. fast forward a couple of years, um, I must have been 91, 92, uh, Leisure Suit Larry VGA comes out, the re- VGA remake of the game. Did you ever play that? Yes. It's quite a good uh, one. Yeah, very good. And I think they might have changed some of the questions because... I went over to my best friend's house at the time and we would sit up in their attic and somehow their parents, we were only 12, 13 years old. Somehow their parents had, they had, they had no idea who Leisure Suit Larry was. They just let them buy the game. Um, And we would spend hours trying to guess at the answers to these um, age protection questions just to get in. And I thought, Leisure Suit Larry 1 VGA is a fantastic remake. It's a fun game. It's hilarious. It's got a great sense of humor. And I think it's... Oh, there's the phone again. Um, I'll let this one ring out. Um, and I think it did a fantastic job as, as, as you know, very few Sierra remakes did. So that I agree. was my story. <laughs> oh, oh, I agree. I don't, remember, I don't remember having so much trouble with the with the uh, age verification questions somehow. I think there just weren't all that many questions, and so I guessed... It tells you whether you get it right or not, and so I think That's I right. just kind of familiarized myself with them. I guess to this day, I can thank those questions uh, for the fact that I now know who Pia Zadora is. <laughs> <laughs> so I, thanks, I, Mr. Lowe. My, my solution in the end uh, was to actually get um, the one of the almanacs that came, like a historical almanac that came with one of the Carmen Sandiego games. <laughs> And you could, if you, if you set your age to a hundred years old, it would just basically ask you a bunch of historical questions about old presidents that I could look up. That's pretty condescending. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's yeah, great. Pretty, well, and pretty good misuse I'm, I'm, of Carmen San Diego. Oh, no kidding. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> well, uh, so um, so that was my preamble anyway into um, Grim Fandango yeah. remastered. Which um, is probably ex- more or less exactly what I and most purists would want from a remake. Um, awesome. To the best of my ability, all that seems to, be, uh, to that I can tell, um, all that seems to be different is that it uh, first of all runs on modern modern systems without the need for um, Scum VM or I think Grim Gr- oh, Grim VM wow. was the name of the was the name of the yeah, emulator. Gr- so I think it was Grime. Yeah, Grime. The Something old like Grime that. engine. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, it works flawlessly, or I should say, it uh, it it boots up without any external uh, programs. Wow, very so nice. That's kind of nice. Um, they have upscaled the 3D models, both the no, I'm sorry, not the models. They've upscaled the resolution so that the 3D oh. models seem to have the same number of polygons as they always had, but gotcha. they display it at whatever the native resolution of your monitor is. is. So oh. they're nice and sharp, and they redid the textures of the 3D models, and so those. Oh, look... so they are t- retextured. I, that's what I was really wondering. They are retextured, and they have a, a button kind of similar to like a toggle, like the one that they oh, had in cool. the Secret of Monkey Island uh, wow. remake, where uh, you can switch on the fly between the two. And so it's basically like superimposed, like pixel by pixel, more or less. But it looks Fantastic. much sharper and totally respectful of the source material. Wow. Uh, there's, yeah, so I love that. Um, from what I can tell, all the pre-rendered backgrounds are the same. 
Um, okay. They, I think they're the same resolution as they always were. When I toggle between the two different modes, I my to my ah. eye they seem identical to me. But it's fine. It, uh, it looks fine. They're... So they they don't look blurry or anything when they've been scaled up to you know sixteen hundred by twelve hundred. Not at all. Not wow. at all. I'm That's really amazing. surprised. And uh, the, the resolution that you mentioned reminds me to say that it remains uh, four by three um, aspect okay. ratio, and they kind of you can choose gotcha. whether you want to have bars that are kind of decorated with like art deco patterns on either side or you can stretch <laughs> it out like my parents love to do on their widescreen tv with their standard definition uh that's a dagger to my content. heart there's, there's oh nothing i know that makes me feel more painful than seeing something ruined in aspect ratio i know i know oh people look so so wall-eyed and flabby <laughs> That that is that is it. one of my very few neuroses that I have. <laughs> okay, good. Has to do with, with false letterboxing. Oh god. Okay. I don't feel too bad about my own now, so that's good. <laughs> um they also amazingly added a mouse driven point and click interface to this game, which was otherwise Aha. controlled primarily through driving your character with the keyboard or with a joystick. And you had the option yeah. originally to either use what was known as tank controls, where if you push left right. on your joystick then your character turns left. Or right. you could use like absolute controls, where if you push left on your joystick, then your character walks to the left-hand side of the room, uh, regardless oh. of which way he was facing. So, um, yeah. So, um, am I missing anything? I think they had. I haven't watched. It comes with all this uh, making of material, which I haven't yet watched. Cool. But I'm, I believe what I'm they really did wondering... was. Oh, sorry. Keep going. I was going to say, I believe they found the old recordings of the voice casting and all of that, because it's the same wow. actress as it always was. It sounds super crisp, extremely good recordings, extremely good renderings. And I think they might have re-recorded the music with the new band, but it sounds exactly wow. to me like it used to. And what a great soundtrack that one has, like kind of roaring 20s sort of uh, uh, jazzy stuff, I believe. Oh, I'm if so I'm not excited. What's uh, great. What platforms did it get released out on? I think all the major ones. I think it's on Mac PC. I think it's also on Linux and for PlayStation 4 as well. Gotcha. Um, so do, any ideas if they're planning on an iOS port? Um, They must be. They really that must be. That would be very cool. They have a few on-screen elements that they added, which uh, are beneficial for when you're controlling with a mouse. And I think okay. they would be ideal for when you're controlling with oh, uh, tapping. So, yeah, I was just wondering how, how well tapping would work for... Uh... A 3D on top of a 2D plane. That sounds that sounds awesome. Yeah, well, the backgrounds are sort of like uh, faux 3D, where it's a pre-rendered background right. that doesn't rotate or anything, so it's not too difficult to get your guy around. Perfect. They did a terrific job with the point-and-click interface. My only That's... gripe is that it's a little bit unstable. Um, oh, the really? Game, they warn you in the very beginning that the game doesn't have auto-save, and so it's up to you to save uh... diligently. And so um, I'm glad that I have been, because probably five or six times now it's it doesn't crash but i lose control of my character where like my my uh cursor grays out and my character doesn't walk and can't interact with anything and i can't oh, even wow. quit the game or anything so i have to alt f4 it so wow. that's a bit of a shame it's not the most stable release but it's uh not keeping me from finishing the game anyway okay well that's so. good to hear I, and i'm glad that they fixed the controls issue because i can honestly say back in Oh, over 10 years ago when I played Grim Fandango, um, I quit on it pretty early because I could not handle the awful keyboard interface. It reminded me of another game which had a terrible keyboard interface called Fade to Black, which was kind of an unofficial sequel to um, Flashback. Have you ever played that? Yeah. Yeah, that's and, right. That's right. And it was really, really painful camera controls. 
um, and I really had a difficult time with it. So that's that's awesome, and I can't wait to play it soon. I totally recommend it. It's it's even funnier than I ever remembered. Extremely well written, great pacing and dialogue. Like uh, it's it's a real pleasure. It's very mature and very respectful of uh, grown-ups who might play the cool. game. So a very rewarding game. So Tim Schafer yeah. at his best. It it is. That's just about the only way I ever see that guy. He's a, a hell of a guy. I have humongous respect for Mr. Schaefer. Very funny, very hardworking, dedicated guy who puts out consistently great stuff. Yeah, exactly. And I've been getting a chance to see some of the Double Fine Adventure um, documentary episodes. And every episode, you know, people may disagree or agree with the way that Double Fine works. But the one thing I love about Double Fine is they're all insanely passionate. They all have the same goal, which is just to put out the best quality game they can. And that's, uh, that, you know, you can't say that for everyone. So, fantastic. Great. And playing anything else? Uh, nothing really worth mentioning. I'll have more for next week. Okay, cool. Yeah, me too. Um, I've definitely been playing some more stuff. So, in fact, that might get us closer to our topic today. Um, are we ready to jump in? Oh, you betcha. Yes, I have, uh, I have been doing plenty of uh, hands-on research for our topic today. Me too. I, um, I've been doing... <laughs> We are going to talk about a couple of things. Uh, the one closest to my heart is BBS Door Games, and you're also going to talk about... Um, I, I will also talk about a few of the uh, meetups that I had with uh, Real Honest to Goodness people in Real Honest to Goodness Meet Space. That's awesome. Yeah, I, um, I, I never got the chance to do that um, because... Well, I don't know why. Oh, at the time, I was living in a rural area, and the idea of getting a ride for one hour to the city was basically next to, you know, try to convince your mom, saying, hey, mom, I'm going to, you know, go meet a bunch of strangers who are all older than me in the middle of the city that we're already afraid of. Can you drive me there? It's only one hour each way. So <laughs> never happened in my, in, in, my, uh, in my place I grew up. Oh, well, speaking of that, to go on a small tangent, I have to give uh, humongous props to my dad. My family and I were in uh, Florida on vacation visiting uh, an aunt and uncle and some cousins that lived there. Um, They were, I don't know, my geography is not all it ought to be. They were in one part of Florida anyway. And at the time, I was actively using the ICQ instant messenger. Did you ever use that one? Yeah, yeah, ICQ. I've got a lot of ICQ-related stories. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> well, this uh, this is the only one I think of consequence that uh, is worth sharing for me. But just because you mentioned uh, being driven out to be- to go yeah. meet people, my dad drove me while we were on my vacation, uh, like three hours. I think it was from like Holy Tampa cow. to Orlando or something like that, so that I could meet two different people that I knew from ICQ. They were good buddies <laughs> of mine. So that was awesome. That's I think awesome. I. I went to uh, I met one at a mall and she and I just walked around music stores and looked at uh, music together and chatted and we traded some uh, mixtapes that we recorded for each other and uh, the amazing. other I uh, went out for lunch with. Oh, that's we, such a great story. Then we drove the three hours back. So boy, was that awfully nice of my dad to dedicate all that gas money and a whole day of his vacation to uh, allow me to do such a dubious activity. <laughs> Did your dad hang around while you were doing it or were you free to go off on your own? I was free to go off on my own in the mall and in the restaurant. He just kind of sat at the bar. I don't. I probably had like three alcoholic beverages in his whole life, so he just kind of sat there nursing <laughs> a water or something while the two of us chatted. He gave us our space. That's that. That is an adorable story. Um, one of these days, we should probably do a whole episode on ICQ and internet messaging at some point. Oh, I because... would love to. I I, I am uh, blessed with a sub seven digit. Uh, ICQ number. My ICQ number, which I still remember, is six digits, which is pretty elite, as I as I hear. 
Was it higher or lower than 328747? Oh, you beat me by a mile. Mine was 628880. Yeah. Oh, I know. Oh, you're... <laughs> You're twice the man I am, Chris. I, I feel so... Oh, I have no idea why that's such a point of pride, but like a six-digit ICQ number was such a big deal. Oh, well, now that you brought it up. So I guess with the other story that comes to mind, um, I <laughs> somehow got back into touch very briefly with one of my fellow mud-tracking uh, compatriots. We used to track oh, mods cool. for a group called Atomic. This was in like 1994, 1995, and I think we chatted awesome. again by chance one way or another in like 2010. Um, wow. And when I told him about my six-digit ICQ number, he asked if he could buy me lunch in exchange for me giving him... <laughs> my icq account so i said no are you crazy <laughs> it's like no it's worth like 50 lunches that's exactly it and that was oh, that was the that last is I hilarious <laughs> i never attributed uh, any value to it until that until it was challenged to uh, decide I, whether it was worth getting rid of i would pay anybody to hack okay so what happened was Huh, I was a huge, I'm not going to tell the ICQ story. I'll tell you that one offline. It's, it's like so depressing and, and pathetic. Uh, <laughs> All right. I look forward to it. Yeah. Um, but around 2000, oh, I don't want, I want to say like 2004, 2005, ICQ got massively hacked. And I was one of those stupid users who used the same password for everything for 10 years. Mm -hmm. And my, my beautiful 328747 account got taken over oh. and yeah, I know, and I, I and I so bad. Every year I would go back and just try to like try random passwords and never got back in. So somebody obviously stole my goddamn three two eight seven four seven account, and I would do anything to get it back. So if you got any of you hacker types who are willing to hack an ICQ account for me, I'm 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 paying big money here, like two lunches. I'll I'll go put my people on it. <laughs> awesome. Uh, so what were we talking? Oh yeah, meetups. So. Do you have any good meetup story, BBS meetup stories? Okay, sure. Let's start up with the meetup stories. All right. I um, I had three stories that came to mind. Um, I will start off with the very first person that I met uh, through BBSing. So sure. this was a, a guy named Mike. He became a very, very good friend of mine. We hung out many, many times over several years. Um, cool. We, uh, I first met Mike um, while I was... Uh, I was fairly well established with the uh, mod tracking group uh, called Mazurka. Cool. Was it Mazurka? It was Mazurka. And um, so this is a Toronto uh, BBS release group. Uh, sorry, a, a Toronto mod music release group. Right. Um, and we were headquartered on a BBS. And so we were always looking for new composers. And so we had... Uh, we had a private area somewhere where people could submit their music that they wanted us to review and uh, mm -hmm. consider them for membership. And so this guy submitted nice. a couple of songs and he had this great uh, early 90s uh, deep house kind of a sound, which uh, totally resonated with me. It was very similar to a lot of the stuff that I had heard. And it was kind of a characteristic sound of Toronto, which uh, some of my fellow uh, BBS, uh, sorry, some of my fellow um, mod tracking guys also recognized uh, as they cool. were in tune with uh, what was going on in the city. So I was the one who heard his music first and I kind of uh, praised him to the group and they checked him out and they accepted him for a short time as well. Um, so, and he went by the name of Vicious, which was a DJ name of his apparently. Um, cool. So he and I uh, participated on the Mazurka group for a little while before 
uh, Mike decided that he wasn't the biggest fan of uh, the people there, and I, it, was, it wasn't long before I decided that as well. So he created his own BBS group known as VSL, which was Variety is the Spice of Life, because we wanted to <laughs> make any kind of music that we wanted without having to be beholden to the, the whims or preferences of the other people in the group. Ah, and so that worked out really well. We released a whole ton of music. It was mostly like dance music uh, kind of styles. Um, and it was mostly people from the immediate area as was uh, the, uh, as was the way of uh, the BBS days, just because nobody wow. rarely would uh, dial long distance. And so um, right. at first he and I would compose a whole bunch of music and um, instead of uh, sending the files to each other, we would invariably call one another um, on each of our two, on both of our two telephone lines, and wow, we would, one we had of a us separate line. We had two telephone lines, and so uh, we uh, we would hold two phones up, one to each of our speakers, so that the other person could hear the song <laughs> in stereo. And so that is so awesome. So I would be there with a phone on either. <laughs> <laughs> Both of my ears at the same time, like earmuffs. It was probably the dorkiest, most in, indiscernible activity from the outside, but uh, it it worked well enough hearing those songs in whatever whatever quality phone might be, eight kilohertz audio or some horrible. I thing think like it is that. eight kilohertz, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that was a very fun memory. So we the the first time we talked on the phone. We hit it off so well. I remember we talked for about five hours. It was from like wow. midnight until five a.m. We did that five days in a row over Holy one crap. summer. So we talked for 25 hours the first five days that we started talking on the phone. That's how much he and I had in common. So that was That's really fantastic. cool. That's and he was fantastic. a couple of years older than me or so, maybe more than a couple, maybe three or four years older than me. So we decided right. we would meet up one day. And so we went downtown. We decided to go to the uh, HMV music store, a big one in uh, downtown Toronto, and also to check one, out yeah. a couple of uh, DJ shops. That's amazing. Um, yeah, so I met him downstairs in the HMV. It used to be nothing but uh, underground dance music. Um, nowadays, right. it's I, I don't know they sell uh, they sell Xbox games down there or something. Yeah, but, probably uh, Xbox games and T-shirts and and Angry Birds stuffed animals. Pretty well, pretty well. So uh, back in those days, it was known as the basement, B A S S M E N T, the bottom <laughs> of the HMV where they had all the house and techno music. So we, uh, I met him there and. Uh, I remember he was wearing like purple jeans or something. I'm like, oh, I've never seen purple jeans. This guy's cool. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he introduced himself to me and I was just so nervous because I'd never met another person uh, in this way before. So I was really nervous yeah. and he commented me to me about being nervous and it wasn't too long before I loosened up a little bit because we already knew so much about each other. That's and, so cool. Uh, I went on to go visit him at his house time and time again. I would spend many weekends with him just hanging out, and we would do a lot of music composition stuff together. He had a lot of cool technology stuff. He was the first person I met who had a cable modem, and so he uh, that was my first experience, checking that out, uh, clicking away at like 12 browser tabs at once just because I could. So <laughs> good times. That's my story about uh, Vicious, who... Was a, an amazing. extremely well accomplished uh, composer. I love his music. I still listen to his music uh, today, and uh, I think what I will do is put one of his songs at the end of today's episode, oh, just to say, oh. just to, to to give a big up to my buddy Mike. That's fantastic. Are you guys uh, still in contact? It's been quite some time. Um, okay. I got to I got to track him down. I googled him about a month ago or so, and I found a couple of ways that I might be able to get in touch with him. So oh, uh, I very, need to track him cool. down just to say hi. Yeah, yeah and that great, was a great that, guy. That was that was the thing about, you know, um, bulletin board systems. They were so local, like Joe mentioned in his voicemail, it, it kind of created the sense of community where the internet, you know, 
good and bad, it just never has quite matched up to that sense of saying, well, you know, I've, I've definitely met people over the internet um, that, you know, um, over the time, but it never quite had that sense of like local community. Um, did you have any uh, other group meet? Did you ever make it to a group meetup or were they always kind of one-on-one? I did make it up to a few group meetups, actually. Oh, Those nice. were mod music related as well. Um, cool. So I don't think we called it as such, but I would call it like a mod jam sort of a thing where yeah. a, a bunch of established mod musicians from the area would agree to meet in the basement of somebody's house. And we would spend like six hours or so. We would uh, either compose music on our own. We all bring our computers, of course, and hook them up to a LAN. So that when I say we bring our computers, it's not like we had laptops or anything. We would get our desktop computers and our gigantic CRT monitors and drag <laughs> them down to someone's basement. And you had to bring your own um, uh, extension cords and uh, power bar as well, because you can't expect one guy to have that many plugs. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> one guy would usually bring um, a bunch of network adapters and like a token ring cable <laughs> with like uh, T connectors and terminators and stuff like that. The only time that my computer was ever networked in any way, but the modem uh, at that time. And so we would waste a little bit of time, a minimum of time playing like uh, Doom or StarCraft or something. But for the most parts, we would uh, either on our own or in small groups uh, break away to uh, compose music together and drink lots of pop and eat lots of snacks. Pretty wholesome wholesome activity for a a group of teenage boys. Where where would you guys generally meet up? We would usually go to somebody's basement. Usually it was someone who had really cool parents and uh, didn't <laughs> mind a whole bunch of uh, strange uh, young men in their basement yeah, with a whole bunch, exactly. of, with a bunch of expensive computers. Computer wasting equipment. their power, yeah. That's right. So uh, <laughs> props to those parents. They're very trusting, but we, I don't think we abuse their trust too badly. So that was a really fun experience. It was my first time meeting a lot of these people that I had associated with for quite some time uh, in person for the first time. Um, uh, more than once, uh, some of these people had already met each other, and I would be introducing myself in person to them for the first time. And, of course, cool. they would say, oh, who do you think is who? And so I would have to match what I would imagine to be the the face of the person to whatever their alias might be. Right. So I'm like, oh, uh, you're you're the master of darkness, and you're Paganus, and uh, you're Persephone. <laughs> <laughs> and so I always got it wrong, too. There, the the youngest guy there had a full beard, and I knew that one guy was the youngest of of them all. So I'm like, oh, the guy with the beard can't be the youngest one, and he was. That's it was hilarious. all downhill from there. Yeah, so cool. that was that was a really good time. So uh, I learned uh, through these mod jams what a uh, number one that people who um, wrote very so- soothing music often had like a very brash demeanor or were oh. short tempered, and people wow. who wrote really aggressive music. Uh, were very amicable and uh, friendly. That was quite an interesting uh, dichotomy that I never would have wow. guessed. That's very, um, very Freudian. I like it. Isn't it? <laughs> These people kind of looking for an out, an outlet, yeah. kind of expressing their, their duality. Um, That's fantastic. And I also learned what a, a terrible, selfish collaborator I am when I am asked to write a song with somebody else. I was very domineering. So, oh, really? You, oh, that you was felt... pretty ugly. <laughs> what, what would happen? I, uh, I'm a little shaky on the details, but I do remember, uh, at least one person of our four person group and it's hard to write a song with four people, of but course, that, yeah. them, them's the breaks. So I, I sort of remember some people not being quite so thrilled about writing a hardcore techno song, but I'm like, yeah, well, 
too bad that's what the song is. So <laughs> I did like 85% of the song and I think they chose some samples or something like that or did a little melody here or there or something and then I was <laughs> totally dissatisfied with the way it had turned out. But uh, creativity hilarious. is not always the best activity that's uh, shared with uh, collaborators, I suppose. So I guess. I t- and, and some projects are best led by a director of some kind, right? I think so. I th- maybe <laughs> even most projects. I don't know. But uh it's 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 very hard to uh, write music with another person. I think you have to have the personality for it, and maybe that's oh, all you totally. need. So yeah, and I, I understand. I I, I've I've never written music with anybody else before, but yeah, I can imagine how how difficult it is to when it comes to you know personal expression. Right, um, it's hard to share personal expression with other collaborators right off the bat. It definitely is, but I have some very positive experiences um, collaborating with some people after the fact, and it wasn't oh, cool. in person. It wasn't face-to-face, and it wasn't uh, with a time limit. And so I think that kind ah. of took away a lot of the, uh, a lot of the urgency. It, it wasn't quite so stressful. They would, they yeah. would uh, make the melody, and I would make like a drum beat and a bass line or something like that. Or I would start right. off with a little riff of some sort, and they would make a whole song out of that. Gotcha. So, so you, you kind of go back and forth asynchronously? More like they would, the one person would do as much as they could and then kind of hand it off to the other person to finish. Ah. I think the more back and forth you have, the harder it gets. Oh, okay. So Interesting. Wow. At some point, you just have to kind of tie a ribbon around it and say goodbye to it. Yeah. That's, I, I can't, that's the best. I, we, need to do a, we need to do an episode on the mod music scene because uh, I would love for you to be able to kind of explain to everyone what the process of like is, uh, is like of actually developing mod music. Oh, I would definitely love to do that. And in fact, our very good buddy Trolls has asked whether he might muscle in on that conversation as he is a mod musician himself. Oh, you're kidding. That that sounds amazing. Fantastic. Yeah, so m- maybe we can uh, uh, count on our good buddy Trolls to uh, join us one of, these, uh, that, one of these weeks. That would be very, very cool. I, I can't I wait love for that. it. For sure. Um, so I guess the last uh, meetup story that uh, I can think of sharing, um, I guess this happened after I had met Mike and before these mod jams occurred. Yeah. I think I was on... Funny that uh, I refer to basically t- the two main types of BBSs as a PD board, a, mo- a public domain board, or right. a wares board. <laughs> so basically they're the legitimate BBSs and then they're the BBSs where the pri- the primary purpose was software piracy. I, so, that, that, that's the best taxonomy I've ever heard. <laughs> that's great. It's the two, the two factor of taxonomy. <laughs> exactly. So um, I, I was on a, I was on a PD board and I met some girl and she was nice. We chatted about this and that, whatever. And she asked me, maybe we could meet sometime. And so I said, okay, why not? And mm-hmm. so we had agreed to meet at a coffee shop in uh, Mississauga, which is quite west of the city. It was close to where right. she lived, but it was probably a good 50 or 60 kilometers from where I live. But oh, uh, wow. that's the way it goes in Toronto. You're lucky if something is nearby to you. And if it's not, then those are just the facts of life. So uh, I had two small problems with this meetup. The first being that I don't think I had ever had uh, a cup of coffee in my life. And here we were <laughs> going to meet at a coffee shop. And um, the second being the fact that this girl decided to share with me that she was a model. And so oh, very, that just very, made... very nice start. Isn't that a nice start? So that just made me nervous about it for whatever reason. That's This is, <laughs> this is uh, <laughs> barely post-pubescent. I can see where this is going. Brian. 
Yeah, so <laughs> thankfully it didn't go too far with anything. I mean, I was nervous, but I went to go meet her, and because I was nervous, I never had a cup of coffee in my life. Here we are in a coffee shop, so I'm like, um, I'll have a coffee, I guess. <laughs> so I ordered a coffee. It was really gross, and she's like, oh, why'd you order it if you don't like it? I'm like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> to impress you, come on. Basically. Yeah. Oh, painful. So, we we probably chatted for a good forty five minutes or so. It was it was a pleasant chat. It didn't really turn into anything. I don't remember whether I chatted with her very much afterwards, but uh, it was a good uh, social experience for me anyway. That's so, pretty. Uh, that's pretty funny. I, I love I love those kinds of awkward meetup stories. I've I've had my share of them. When we get to ICQ, I'm gonna blow your mind. <laughs> okay, right on. I, I will very much look forward to it. So that's that's about the long and the short of my BBS meetup stories, as I can really recall. But uh, I do value uh, the friendships that I kept for quite a long time. Um, they, yeah, they were fulfilling in terms of just kind of personal, uh, just per- a personal relationship with a person, but also they were terrific in terms of collaborating and learning things about uh, music. Yeah, from these I think it's really cool. People. Uh, really cool that yeah, the interest there was you know creative in 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 some way because you know in my experience most of the time when i met somebody for instance i used to be a big user of irc back in the late 90s early 2000s mm-hmm, and too. yeah my experience was mostly you know you end up talking about games or you end up talking about something else but there's no real creative development happening there and i think that's amazing that you can pull that off with the bbs yeah not too shabby although the the irc channel that i usually hung out in was uh on Fnet to the tracks channel, which was for all ah. the mod musicians. So, so we were, we, so even though we didn't know each other at the time, we were both on Fnet. Hey, that's right. Small that's world. That's funny. Uh, that's hilarious. Yeah. Air is free net for anybody who, um, didn't make use of the internet relay chat programs back then was one of the big ones. There was also irc.undernet.org. And oh, yeah. yeah. And there was beyond IRC. There was a few kind of like straggler, um, IRC nets that existed at that point, but in my opinion, EFnet or Fnet or Eris Freenet was the one that mattered. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So and so, uh, you were right about um, mentioning about the communities and all of that because um, when you chat with people who are even just from the same geography approximately as you, then you can sort of assume uh, just some base amount that they're you know you have some things in common or exactly that you know where they're coming from. Um, one thing that struck me that always strikes me is so funny if i'm playing world of warcraft with my wife if we're in a raid with our guild or something there's always going to be someone from uh, the usa who uses some fantastic slang that i've never heard of before (laughs) and no matter what i'm doing i kind of lose track of all thought because i'm rolling around this this idiomatic phrase in my mind so best example i can think of recently was a guy from i think he was from louisiana or from uh-huh. South Carolina, I, I don't know exactly, somewhere in uh, somewhere further south, and he uh, he was trying to convey that we have to do one thing and then we have to do something else immediately, and so he doesn't say that we have to do it very quickly. He said you have to be Johnny on the spot with this guy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I've heard I that it. before, Johnny on the spot. Oh man, I hadn't heard that one. I loved it. I loved that- it. That's fantastic. That's like very, that's very like 1940s. Um, Isn't it? Oh, man. It's like it's a fan- Clark Gable kind of a thing. Exactly. The last time I heard that was in uh, Saving Private Ryan. He's like, I want you to be Johnny on the spot with that like pipe oh, bomb or man. something. 
<laughs> That's great. Well, I'm quite certain that whatever it was that he wanted me to be so quick about, I, I am the one who screwed it up for everybody because I was stifling my laughter trying to f- I figure that, out what that's this That's like exactly meant. the kind of thing I'd want to hear on a raid. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So there's there's always some southern dame or gentleman with phenomenal idiomatic phrases that uh, crack me up. So That's awesome. Thank you, Americans. So, um, I, I was trying to think of if I had any BBS meetup stories, um, and I don't really have any. That's, for, for once, I have no story to tell. Um, Just because my, of your remote location, is that it? Yeah, that was mostly it. And I think, honestly, at the time when I was on BBSs, I was probably a little too nervous to actually try it out. I, I mean, if you had the balls to, you know, um, take the train or bus out to Mississauga, go to a coffee shop, never had a coffee in your life, and sit there and, like, shake in front of this supermodel. Um, the the idea of me going to the city and meeting up with a random stranger from a BBS that was probably not legal anyway um, just, like, sent chills down my spine, and I wouldn't even have considered it. Um, to, to be honest, though, I think the other part of it might have been I wasn't on that many non-wares boards um, <laughs> or PD boards. Um, so most of the time, people didn't even want to meet up unless they had a reason to, which would be to tr- physically trade stuff. Um, I suppose so. Yeah, and, and you know, I think most people like like hiding under the mask of anonymity for the most part. So I, I don't think there were a lot of BBS meetups in those days for the kind of boards I was on as a kid. <laughs> Oh my gosh, you just reminded me of another of another meetup story, as a matter oh, of fact. Oh, really? Go for it. So, I used to call one Where's BBS. Um, oh, it had something to do... The name was something about the underground. I don't know. It's Yeah, I was going to say, like, 90% of them were, like, dark underground. Home of the underground or something like that. It was, right. I don't know. It was probably dark underground or something like that. <laughs> um, and so, it seemed like any other Where's BBS to me. Um, I don't know how on earth this conversation might have come up, but I was chatting at a rave with a DJ who I liked. Uh, I, I will omit his name, I suppose, because of this story that's about okay. to occur. <laughs> I was talking, I said something about BBSing or something, and he replied with some sort of lingo that only an insider would know. And we kind of exchanged this kind of a look and a nod that <laughs> <laughs> we were in agreement that we were both coming from the same place. And so he mentioned that he was the sysop of a where's BBS. And right. I'm like, Oh my gosh, I call there like every, every single day. That's so, awesome. Uh, I, I found out later on that the name of his BBS was actually also the name of a song that he loved. And so oh, you're kidding. Uh, the next time uh, he, the next time he knew that I was going to be at a, a party that he was spinning at, he played the song and he kind of gave me the uh, shooter McGavin finger gun <laughs> finger guns in the audience. That's right. Uh, <laughs> so, that was way too cool. That's awesome. Yeah, it's like the the only you know, one. you know, you're dealing with a where's person when they say you know like that's totally K rad or something. Um, oh, I don't, I don't know, know that one. You, you don't know? Oh, K-Rad? Oh, I'm never sure if that actually meant Kilo-Rad or Kilobyte-Rad or what, but I heard K-Rad. There was a bunch of really lame kind of 90s phrases that people used to swap on the boards I was visiting. It's just like exponentially more rad than rad? Exactly. At least like 1,024 bytes more rad than rad, so. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like some radioactivity uh, uh, scale or something. Exactly, yeah. K-Rad and, yeah, Underground. Those are, like, I wish I had, like, a, a full, like, hacker's dictionary for all of the terrible, crappy words we came up with in those days. 
Yeah, yeah, we should uh, we should check out textfiles.com or something for yeah, exactly. some of that yeah. stuff. Surely somebody wrote one. Oh, that's a super cool meetup story, man. That's mm-hmm. a, like, bizarre. But no such luck from you, huh? You didn't really meet anyone. No, I never did. It wasn't until IRC, which I think, in my opinion, was the next natural step after um, after BBSs. IRC and BBSs seem to have a lot more in common, even though IRC is more about the real-time thing. It seemed to have more of that community feel to it. I don't know why that is, but you're absolutely right. That yeah. BBS people kind of migrated to to exactly IRC. a lot. I don't know if, don't know if that did. was because it was textual or what. Yeah, I don't know either. And and I know, in fact, there was even a channel. I didn't personally hang out there, but um, there was a channel called um, Hash Oldwares on EFNet um, or FNet. And actually, a bunch of the BBS people from my um, part of the world went there. And I only found out ten years later, and I was so sad. I was like, oh, I wish I would have hung out with those guys there. That would have been really cool. Um, mm. Old Wares was the um, IRC channel for all of the kind of abandoned wear pirates that would hang out. Um, and it's really weird that for some reason, all the people from my town decided that they were into abandoned wear. I don't know. <laughs> Very weird. That's something. I, that that uh, channel sounds familiar to me. And maybe that was one of the channels that had like a bot where you could like send it a text message it, of some sort. And it, it would did, send you exactly. A, a, what was it? A DCC file or a, something? A DCC bot, exactly. Uh, there oh, you go. We we totally have to have an IRC episode, and I'll talk about DCC bots, DCC scripting. That's direct. What was it? Direct connection chat or something? Um, and it would allow. I for don't know. File, it, it would allow for file transfers between you and the remote party, kind of a very early uh, file sharing uh, thingy. Um, yeah, I wonder. Direct communication connection or something. I don't know. Yeah, direct communication connection. I think that's a, that sounds right. And, uh, yeah, I, I was big time into that at the time because it was, you know, these bots that you would have on IRC channels, not to get too off track, um, they would basically emulate a little miniature BBS. Um, I don't know if you remember, you'd connect to them. They would have like a little textual menu that would come down. You could say like hit W to list, um, all of the files available or hit D to download a file, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. They're quite sophisticated. They were, yeah, and they were like a fantastic hack because you know these IRC channels were basically there just to exchange um, exchange text messages with each other. Yeah, that's right. No, you kind of hacked together kind of a robo concierge who would forward yeah. you to whatever service you wanted to call up. It was pretty clever. Yeah, it was super clever. So we'll have to we'll have to talk about that at some point. Um, we'll have to. Yeah. Um, what I was thinking about talking about was BBS door games. Let's do that. That is a very beloved topic for myself and for many, no doubt. Oh man, I'm so excited. So for anybody who isn't too familiar with what a door game is, a BBS door game was this idea that when you log into the BBS, you could tell the BBS, run a game that exists on the BBS side, so the server side, and it would just send you the data over the screen of what's happening on the server side. So um, in, you know, in the case of that era, Almost all of the games were text-based, ASCII or ANSI-based. So it would just be like, um, I don't know, um, you couldn't really do any complex graphics or anything like that because it would just have to refresh the screen, repaint the screen with ASCII codes or ANSI codes uh, over and over. So the games were never really built to be action-oriented, not even, you know, and you had tons of latency over the phone lines. So most of the time they were kind of these turn-based experiences. Um, was that, is that like a fair assessment of what it was like for you? Oh yeah, totally. I think that's a good description of uh, how it was. I think if I'm not mistaken, I think they were called door games because, um, the 
uh, game files, the game programs themselves were external to the software uh, that exactly. the BBS ran on, and so it would have to open like a door or a socket to yes. carry the user session from the BBS server over to the uh, game itself. That's exactly what it did. Um, and it, they used, uh, for anybody who's interested in the kind of technology behind it, um, these games were programmed completely separately of the BBS. They were kind of their own standalone thing. So this would be like shelling out to something in DOS. Um, you needed a way to communicate between the BBS and the door game itself to share data back and forth. So they used these things called drop files. Did you ever hear that term, a drop file? I don't think so. Oh, yeah. I, I, I had an experience setting up a BBS once. So what it would do is the BBS, and, and it took years for them to standardize this, the BBS would create a text file with the current user's name, the current user's, I don't know, amount of downloads they had, the current user's time, the current user's um, security level, all of this stuff. It would fill this text file with that, and then it would spit it out into the BBS folder, and then the door game would grab that file. It was called like door.sys or door.drp for drop. And the BBS would grab it and say, oh, or sorry, the door game would grab it and say, oh, okay, welcome back, Brian. Um, you are currently level six, et cetera, et cetera. And then you'd play through the door game. The door game, you know, in the case of, well, we'll get to the specific games, would write all the changes to the, to the world. And then it would rewrite the drop file and say, aha, Brian, I don't know, got to level 16 with his warrior and put that back in the text file and the BBS software would grab that text file and for instance could extract out important information like ah Brian got to level 16 warrior and it would post it on the wall of the BBS to announce to everybody um, how you had done that day in the BBS game so I don't know a little little background information but I thought it was really cool that you know you really had to hack stuff together in those days to make it work at all yeah, very cool. I uh, I am ashamed to admit that I was never a, a sysop or a co-sysop, and so my experience with uh, <laughs> setting things up is limited to my more recent experiences, which I'll uh, speak about later on. But awesome. uh, I, I never had to to uh, wrestle with the uh, intricacies of uh, the DOS configurations. Yeah, it wasn't a big big deal. I mean, I just monkeyed around with it as as a kid. I basically spent like several weeks as a teenager setting up my own BBS even though I had no ability to actually share it with anybody because um, we only had one phone line. <laughs> but uh, I, I did spend a lot of time, um, you know, this one year getting up my own board, putting up my own ANSI art, uh, that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, back to door games. So um, the games that I came up with um, that I thought back to were Baron Realms Elite, Solar Realms Elite, BRE, SRE, um, Usurper, Legend of the Red Dragon, and one of my personal favorites, Trade Wars 2002. Any of those ring a bell? Oh yeah, those all ring a bell. The other awesome. one that I was familiar with, but I don't think I ever played on my own, was one known as VGA Planets. Oh right, and VGA Planets, yes. I uh, forgot about that one. And there were a bunch of little ones. I remember there was like a food fight one. I think there was a bowling one. There were various yep. trivia ones. There was, there was a more than a handful of these games. Yeah, I think I, I might have played the um, some of the trivia games. There was like a Star Trek trivia one. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I played some of those. They weren't great. Um, but the ones that really mattered to me were like the turn-based strategy-ish or um, role-playing game-ish ones like Usurper, Legend of the Red Dragon, and Trade Wars. What about you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was the more of the, the combat-oriented ones, the slaying lots of monsters and... Uh, 
kind of uh, navigating around an open world. Uh, that yeah. was the stuff that interested me more than the strategy ones. Although I did play the strategy ones to some limited extent. Right. Did you? Uh, so were you a lord or a usurper fan or both? I was definitely a fan of both. Um, so uh, shall I talk about these two? Yeah, please, please. Okay, so it, um, the first one, Lord, which is a, an acronym for Legend of the Red Dragon. This was a game made by a guy named Seth Robinson, who, for whatever reason, refers to himself as Seth Abel. Yeah, Seth Abel the Bard. I just remember that was always That's on right. the login screen. <laughs> That's right. He was actually, yeah, the, the Bard in uh, this game who uh, would entertain people in the inn. So this yes. is basically a, uh, a, a fantasy-themed uh, combat RPG sort of a game, a light RPG, yeah. um, but of course entirely text-based. Um, so the uh, premise is that there is a red dragon tormenting the townspeople. I forget what the name of the of the town is, and yeah, they too. need a they need a hero to uh, slay the dragon. And so <laughs> there's nobody who's quite up to the task as is. So all the players uh, take the role of would-be heroes who have to slay lesser monsters and equip themselves and level up in order to uh, get up to the point where they can kill a dragon. Exactly. So um, you start off by choosing your class and your gender. Um, nice to be able to choose a gender in this game, and there are some different options in the game based on your gender. That's right. Um, mostly superficial, but... Uh, some, yeah, some, but it's uh, it's surprising to see in a game that early. Um, I think that's 89-90. I can't remember quite when it came out. Maybe even earlier than that. I, wow. I should have checked. I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't um, remember either. Not far from there. So you could choose between either like a warrior or a thief or a, a mystical mage. Mystical was what the uh, yes. class was known as. And so that... Uh, although that means that you attack with either swords or daggers or magic, the game plays pretty well the same, no matter which of those classes you are. Where you yeah, that was my experience too. I would always play as a de warrior by default, but yeah, the, there wasn't a huge difference with each uh, character class. Warrior was my go-to, but I had on different BBSs I tried all of the different uh, classes, and they're they're all more or less identical, with the exception of well, um, when you go into the forest from right. the uh, which is just outside your town, that's where the uh, all the combat happens. Yep. And so when you're in the forest, you'll have somewhere between like 15 to 30 to in on a really generous BBS, maybe 60 fights per day. Yes, pretty kind and of so potential turns you could use to spend them on fights. Yeah. That's right. And so, yeah, a turn is a better term than fights, because you might uh, spend one of your turns either fighting a monster or perhaps doing some random uh, some random encounter of one sort or exactly. another. So, for example, you might come across an old man and you have the opportunity to <laughs> help him across a stream. And if you do, then he gives you five charm points. Yeah, or, exactly. Uh, or you get two emeralds. Yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah. That's right, that's right. So, my favorite of these encounters, which is one of the most memorable things in all of video games, is that one of the encounters is a severed head by the name of Olivia. <laughs> and so... I never got that encounter. Oh, you're kidding. No, no, so what happened? You, you, uh, she is like a, a, a sentient uh, talking severed head. Okay. Um, and she has a whole story of uh, being beheaded by some cruel person, and she was supposed to have died, but for some reason her head lives on, and so she's just like a head on top of a tree stump or something like that. And so <laughs> you at first have the opportunity to either speak with her or to kick her down the street. Oh and my God. that 
that dictates what your relationship will be for the rest of uh, your character's life. <laughs> and so if you kick her, then I think you can either talk to her and she'll always spurn you and that's the end right. of that wasted turn. Right. Or you can torment her further in some way and then you leave in good spirits because you've tormented this oh poor soul God. who couldn't defend herself. I think she can bite you or something as well if you're not careful. Um, however, if you get on her good side, um, if you're a female uh, player, you can either console Olivia right. uh, and uh, she uh, becomes friends with you. Uh, or you can, and then once uh, your relationship has sufficiently progressed, you can do her hair. Oh, really? Uh, I've <laughs> never right. seen that. That's hilarious. And there's a reward for that. However, <laughs> if you are male, then you can uh, you can talk with her, and sometimes she'll give you a, a hint about uh, some other encounter that I'll talk about in a second. Ah. Um, and if you get your relationship up higher enough with her, then uh, you can offer to kiss her. <laughs> and kissing kissing her, I think, gives you some experience points or something like that. And if you progress even further than that, you have the option for this severed head, Olivia, to pleasure you. <laughs> and uh, the way that it uh, describes it, which is just unforgettable to me, which I, I'm sure it's a joke that I didn't get when I was younger, but now I think it's hilarious. It says that uh, Olivia gives you all that she has, and in fact, what she is. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is very, very classy. I, uh... It's pretty classy. It's, there's a lot of innuendo in this in this game. Yeah, and that was the thing. I remember um, Lord as being one of the few games that had you know romance as one of the potential items in the game. It was actually a big deal to me. Um, I don't know if you remember trying to romance. I think her name was Violet. Violet the barmaid. Yes. Yes, that's right. Oh man, you have no idea how many how many turns I wasted trying to romance freaking Violet. Flirting I with know, her, you know, too. flirt, flirt with Violet the barmaid, and you know how pathetic fourteen-year-old me um, trying to convince a fictional character in a fictional game over the phone lines to, you know, um, to to let me to, for her to give me a kiss. Wow, pathetic. That's um, right. Well, poor Violet. She's basically the object of the advances of dozens of uh, teenage <laughs> boys calling into this BBS, all of them trying like incrementally more persuasive means of wooing her, either by exactly. slapping her on the butt or pinching her or trying to kiss her or the big win is to carry her upstairs or to marry her. Yeah, and, and marriage was a possibility. You could You could basically build your character up to the point where you could potentially flirt with um, Violet until she was impressed enough with you to marry you, which was an interesting part of the game. That's right. Well, in fact, I've been playing uh, this game uh, for a few months now on oh. Benj Edwards' BBS Right, the on cave. the cave. Yeah. Yeah, which I've linked to in last week's show notes if anyone would like to check it out with their uh, Telnet BBS client. So I was getting closer and closer, better and better, and uh, wooing the <laughs> fair Violet. I think I was two or one or two... Uh, increments from uh, the top when I could have carried her upstairs. Um, however, to my dismay, when I tried to reach over and kiss her this time, it said that uh, I uh, close my eyes, I lean in for a kiss, and then I notice that my lower lips are being uh, poked by a couple of horrible buck teeth, and that, in <laughs> fact, Violet was recently married to someone else in the game who oh. had gotten further, faster than me, and in her place is uh, Griselda, the hideous old... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> toilet mopper or something like that. You, I have to run away from in horror. <laughs> that is awesome. I'm, we'll, we'll terrific. Cut, we'll cut this part out so your wife doesn't hear it. Uh, that's. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> oh, she she is as much a fan of this game as I am. In some oh, so time. she's into that too. Well, good to know. Yes. I, uh... <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> oh man, I had no. I I honestly, 
th this just shows how, how much I sucked at Lord Legend of the Red Dragon. I could never get Violet past a little bit of a flirt and a, and a quick peck on the cheek. Um, mm. I never got to the point of potential marriage. Wow, congratulations. Oh, well, well thank you. I, I wasn't quite quick enough. <laughs> that's she awesome. Sure and gave that, a lot of guys a chance. That's something that I forgot to mention um, when we were talking about door games. The big deal about door games is you were playing asynchronous multiplayer. Um, I, I don't know why I didn't think of mentioning this. It's you and... 50 or 100 or even 10 of your buddies on this BBS who are all playing the game together. So you're not playing it synchronously, so you can't chat with each other in real time, but you can leave messages. You can, I think it was, wasn't it you can scroll something on the, on the bar table or something? Um, yeah, there's a few different opportunities for you to leave a message here or there, either in town or if you find a bar somewhere, you can scratch it on the table or there's exactly. like a, a garden. You can arrange the flowers into a, 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 oh, right. into a message. Pretty silly, but yeah, lots of places where you can kind of leave your virtual mark. Yeah, and I thought that was like I don't know. It's hard to explain to anybody now. Everyone, you know, kind of takes for t takes for granted that uh, synchronous multiplayer is how things go. But in those days, it wasn't possible because you'd only have one phone line generally, so you couldn't have more than one person online. Um, and we'll talk about synchronous multiplayer in a little bit because Usurper actually supported that. Um, mm -hmm. But, um, yeah, it was a big deal to me that I would, you know, you'd find out what somebody, you know, so-and-so died today or so-and-so was eaten by, um, you know, killed by a goblin in the forest. And I love seeing those messages every time I'd log on. Yeah, I like that a lot, too. If something uh, notable happened to someone, if they got killed or if they did something heroic or monumental, then uh, exactly. when you logged on, everyone who logged on that day or that week or whatever would uh, hear about it. Yeah. It's kind and of your claim to flame. So, and it was, but, you know, basically the gameplay was, um, I, I think, in my opinion, the social stuff in that game made the game worthwhile. The actual gameplay itself was very grindy. You know, you basically use up all of your turns to kill animals in the forest, go back to town, upgrade your armor, upgrade your equipment, put the rest in the bank and go and sleep in the inn for the night. Mm -hmm. That was my experience anyway. Um, very, very grindy That was enough game. to, it was still enough for me to have a good time with it. Even if it oh, were a definitely. one player game, I'd still kick it around a little bit. It's a... It's it's well presented. It's presented well enough and kind of gives the illusion of depth, I suppose, which yeah. is a veneer that kind of wears off the more you play it and understand what the underlying <laughs> systems are. But that's uh, that's very so, true. It's yeah, very amusing. Yeah, so I guess that's Lord in a, a nutshell. Yeah, um, definitely. I want to leave time a... for the other games too, but I will uh, contrast Lord with Usurper, which is another very uh -huh. similar game. Um, but I always like this one a little bit better. Um, Lord was a very lightweight, easy-to-play kind of a game where pretty much everything is self-explanatory, and you learn... Uh, you don't really have to learn by failing. You basically That's learn right. by trying and succeeding. Whereas Usurper is much less forgiving and much more complex <laughs> and deep and more opportunities uh, not only to fail, but to succeed in new ways and to do things other than the bare minimum of activities that were available to you. No, the similar games like Lord. Yeah, so, I um, wasn't a big usurper player. So what? What was the? How did the gameplay differ? Because I know it was generally still kind of a dungeon crawl kind of thing, uh, set up. Primarily, at its heart, it is a dungeon crawl kind of a game. The main gameplay is to kill monsters and to gain experience and money and to upgrade your gear and to go deeper yeah. into the dungeons. I don't remember whether there was an ultimate goal exactly, at least in terms of combat, but right. uh, there were a bunch of other goals that uh, were around combat um, or facilitated by gotcha. combat. So, um, first of all, um, in 
uh, Legend of the Red Dragon, you would have one weapon and one piece of armor, and that's as much gear as you had to yes. manage. Whereas in Usurper, uh, a lot of these were toggleable options, but you could have a main hand and an offhand weapon, ah. and I think you had armor on your chest and on your head, on your face, on your fingers and feet, and wow, uh, it, uh, you you probably had a good like ten or fifteen pieces of gear, and uh, you would have to buy them individually and determine which one was better than uh, the one that you had, what you oh, should cool. take off and sell. So a little bit more depth in uh, yeah, that, it sounds a lot uh, more like rogue or net hack. I think so. I think so. Cool. So. There was also um, a, a much more interesting town that you would spend the rest of your ah. time in. It had a whole bunch of different shops. It had like a bartender where you could make your own drinks. And it would say, there would be a <laughs> list of, I think, 30 different ingredients. And you would say, how many of each ingredient do you want to put in? And uh, by random chance, uh, a combination of certain ingredients would either uh, increase or decrease certain stats. Oh my and god, so, that sounds like Russian roulette. It totally is. It totally is. <laughs> and so you could make a you could make a drink and try it, and if it was something that uh, worked out well or not well, you could uh, give it a name, and it would stay on the bartender's menu for other people to have as well. That's so, so you could badass. Either, you could either reward, yeah, you could either reward your fellow players by putting something beneficial on there, or you could troll them by putting something that would poison <laughs> them and 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 ruin. So basically, their the dragon's breath of the menu. That sounds awesome. exactly. That's right. That's right. Uh. What else? I don't know. It had lots and lots of depth. You could like join groups. Um, you could form yeah. groups with other people and um, either take over the town or try to overthrow the king, and then you would become the king or you would become the town leader. Oh, cool. Um, that game had romance between characters. You could actually marry and have children other player in that game characters? if you wanted to. Yeah. Wow. Uh, not other player. The children were NPCs. Oh, the but children you could were NPCs. Marry... Yeah. But, you could but marry another player and you'd marry have another player. children. Wow. That's right. They were your responsibility. And because you could choose um, whether your actions, in many cases, you have the choice to do something good or something evil. So mm -hmm. you could choose to, like, beat your children and bring up your <laughs> evil points or uh, just a whole bunch of stuff. I, I just started playing it again about a week ago, and I oh, know that, that I'm only amazing. scratching the surface. Oh, um, I, I wish I had played Usurper. I remember it being on the boards, and I remember I felt really overwhelmed when I first tried to play it. Um, it totally many, many is years ago. It was Yeah, it was, it was like... Lord, it's like you have four options right off the beginning. It's like enter the forest, go to the tavern, go to the bank, go to the armorer. Um, this usurper felt overwhelming the first time I logged in. And I remember, I think it was on only a two or three BBSs that I was on. And of those, the you know, I, I just said, you know what, I don't, I can't invest myself in it. And I really wish I had. <laughs> and uh, so, I, the one thing I do oh, remember yeah, is though, it supported synchronous multiplayer. Uh, did you ever oh, get a chance so... to do that? I I can't really remember. I do remember there being a feature, and I think the furthest I ever got was either to, you know, you could view who else was online at the time. So yep. there's like the W key or something is who's online, and it would show you who was logged into each of the nodes and was currently playing the yep. game. And I think you can send like a message, so the next time they take a turn, it will show your message exactly. before they type something else in. Yeah, um, and that would. Have, I don't know whether there was anything mind. collaborative that you could do, but that's okay, the extent so, that I so took you couldn't. It to. So you couldn't go down into the dungeons and take on the same monster or something. I think you could, as a matter of fact. I think oh, there was wow. a way to group up. Now I don't know if that was like a real time playing together kind of a thing, right. or if you like enable your group to kind of borrow you while you're offline, and if uh, they die, you die. That, that would make sense. Yeah. Okay. That's probably what it was. Yeah. Wow. That's I never that's, tried you know, it. Pretty ahead of its time, considering that's what 1995, 94, 96. It is. Oh, I um, I don't know if it was very much later than 
than wow. Legend of the Dr- Red Dragon. I bet it was closer to 92 or 93. Wow, that's amazing. Oh, I, 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 I didn't, I definitely did not see Usurper myself until about 94, 95. Um, wow, that's cool. I I just don't remember well enough. Oh, one yeah. other one other little uh, bit of depth that I uh, never knew existed that I encountered by accident just this past week was that mm-hmm. when you are buying uh, when you're buying gear, you can either pay the ordinary price or you have the opportunity to haggle. Oh, so cool. I tried haggling a few times, and the guy, the storekeeper didn't much uh, like what I was offering, and so he banned me from the armor store. <laughs> so... Are you serious? Yeah, so to my great relief, it was only for 24 oh, okay. hours. So it wasn't a permaban. <laughs> okay. That's right. But that really freaks me out. That was quite hilarious. <laughs> that's awesome. I love that there's a consequence for that. Um, you just reminded me of something I forgot to mention with Lord. Um, d- speaking of haggling, uh, did I ever tell you I created a Lord um, uh, a clone for the Texas Instruments calculator? No, really. <laughs> Let's hear about it. Okay, so uh, I was obsessed with Lord when I was in grade, oh, geez, grade grade 9, grade 10, something like that. And in grade 10, all of a sudden, um, TI graphing calculators became a big thing. And our math teachers encouraged us to get them. I think it was they were trying to push this idea of technology in the classroom. So I got this outrageously expensive calculator uh, TI-85, and the rest of the kids had a TI-82, I believe, which was the blue one. Um, and it was like 200 bucks or 250 bucks. It was a lot of money at the time. And my folks were grum- you know, kind of grumbled and said, why do you need this? And I said, well, it's for math class. I'll do so much better in math if I get this thing. Here's what happened. I went into math class, and the first thing I did was learn how to program TI basic. Did you ever have a, a TI calculator when you were in high school? No, I didn't. Oh, man. Um... It had a built-in basic interpreter, so you could actually program the whole thing in basic. Now, it had really limited amounts of memory. I want to say it had like less than 12K available. It was really, really tiny um, of programmable memory. But what I did was I programmed a black and white monochrome um, uh, Lord clone for the TI-85. Um, <laughs> I, I spent the next three months of math class not paying attention to polynomials and and trigonometry, et cetera, et cetera. And I made the closest clone of Lord I could possibly make. And oh my God, I was so proud of it. And the one thing I'd added was bartering. I I made it so you could bargain with the uh, armor seller. So you could, um, I never thought of banning somebody, but yeah, he would would kind of start high and you'd bid low and you'd eventually kind of work towards a a, a median price that you were both happy with. Um, Wow. Yeah, and I I remember spreading that around class because you had this little link cable and I would link up to other people who had a TI calculator and I would copy the game over to theirs. And oh man, it was like, That's so there was, awesome. <laughs> yeah, there was like this three or four months. I think that was my first real programming experience in life was three or four months where I, I ruined everyone's, you know, math experience by introducing Lord into the classroom. <laughs> oh, terrific. I don't suppose you're uh, able to uh, retain a copy of that. No, it's, it's long gone. I was, I, you know, I think. On one of my 486 machines, I had a copy of it because I had hacked together a parallel port link cable so I could copy files from my computer to the TI-85 and from the TI-85 back to the computer. But I think that hard drive crapped out on me years later and I never never got it back. Oh, shucks. Yeah. So, yeah, funny, funny thing. That's hey? great. That's <laughs> great. Yeah. Um, any, any other cool stories about Usurper? No, not really. Not really. Okay. I've got I've got some really cool stuff on Trade Wars if you want to hear it. 
of course. I definitely want to hear about the games that you were into. I played a little bit of Trade Wars myself, but I remember just the bare minimum about it. Yeah, it was, you know, it was also one of those very um, strategy-heavy, very overwhelming uh, kind of games, but had a kernel of great gameplay in it. Trade Wars, for anybody who isn't familiar, Trade Wars 2002 is effectively um, elite uh, remade for multiplayer um, BBSing. So it's a procedurally generated universe, which is amazing for, you know, that time. Uh, a procedurally generated multiplayer universe where you're space trading, you're a space trader. Um, you fly around buying up goods, take them to another planet or another system where the goods are in demand, and you make a profit. Um, the um, You kind of look, go from port to port to port, um, buying and selling and trying to upgrade your ship, trying to get more storage, cargo space, that kind of thing, upgrading your weapons, upgrading your shields, and basically trying to become the king of this this galaxy. And that's effectively what the gameplay is. Um, now, the cool thing, what I love about Trade Wars is, beyond the fact that it's multiplayer and each player starts off in different zones of the map, um, it's that it was very roguelike. Um, it had this amazing map generation system that created an infinitely complex uh, set of galactic kind of systems that you would warp to from system to system. Um, not unlike what you'd see now today in, um, uh, what's it called? Uh, burr, 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 burr. The super complex space trading game that I've never been able to get into. Um, EVE Online? EVE Online, yeah. Um, just a massively complex uh, world and it's got a built-in economy, prices fluctuate, all of that kind of stuff. Um, each world, um, over time, they start off as agricultural worlds, then they become technological worlds, etc., etc. So each of these places is kind of changing over time. It's really amazing stuff. Um, you start off in what's called the Federa in Federation space. It was like very influenced by Star Wars, Star Trek, that kind of thing. So you start off in Federation space, which is effectively a safety zone of 10 sectors. Um, that you can go around. Now the trick is you're rewarded by taking the risk of leaving Federation space in going into new sectors where um, there are potentially aliens or other competitors and it's all hostile territory. Um, did you, so you said you played a little bit of Trade Wars. Did you ever manage to actually make it out of uh, Federation space? Honestly, the more you describe it, the less familiar it sounds. I might not have played this one. Oh, okay, cool. Uh, well, what would happen is you, you know, you could do a little bit of trading in Federation space, but there's really little money to be had, right? Um, because, you know, the, the real risk and the real reward is by leaving the safety zone. So you go out into deep, deep space and you start buying up goods from other planets, taking them back to Federation space to sell them. Um, but the trick of the game was you have a limited number of turns per day, just like Lord. You might have 20 or 30 turns. Um... If your ship gets, if you if you have to log out while you're out in Federation space, this is effectively like being in World of Warcraft and just standing in a super aggro territory and just standing there until shit attacks you. So more often than not, the trick of the game was you had to figure out how many warp hops you could do from sector to sector to get out into hostile space and leave yourself basically with enough turns or fuel so that when you, you could make it back to Federation space, just like the bleeding edge of Federation space, you'd be safe um, for logging out overnight. Um, mm -hmm. It was very, very cool. Um, and I really love that. Um, it just had this great risk reward system. And the game 
always encouraged you to be this miserly kind of, uh, you know, privateer who would, you know, um, spend every single last credit getting the maximum amount of cargo so you could fly it back to another uh, another station and sell it. Um, I think it just did that perfectly. Um, so what was the limiting factor then? Was it uh, that you had a certain number of miles or turns or something in a, in a day? Yes, it was a certain number of turns, which I think they called fuel, um, basically. Uh-huh. And that was the limiting factor. And so you had to be so efficient with the way you spent each turn. Um, you could blow a turn on, oh man, it had some really, really cool stuff. You could go to the spaceport and watch a movie. Um, if, if We haven't really talked about ANSI yet, but you could actually go to the theater, pay a certain number of credits, and waste one of your turns watching an ANSI art movie play out in full-on animation online. Um, oh, terrific. Isn't that cool? Yeah, I, I was just trying to remind myself of little things. It had these little little quirks that were just fantastic. Um, you know, there'd be like a little, you know, 10 second long fast forwarded version of Star Wars or something. Um, and they were super, super adorable. Um, EVE Online took a huge amount of inspiration from it, at least in terms of setting up its its kind of node-like network topology. Um, I've got all these notes that I wrote about actually how the game was built. Um, I don't know if it's really worth going into. It's probably too too technical. But if anybody's interested, just send us a quick note and I'll explain what directed graph theory is. Um, it's a mathematical theory that actually sets up node relationships from sector to sector so you could build a game procedurally, procedurally generated, so that you could warp from zone A to zone B and you would never actually get stuck. You could hit dead ends, but you could always backtrack back. So it was kind of like a, a little bit more complex version of like a tree-like hierarchical system. Um, so if anybody's interested in that, I would love to talk about it. Um, but otherwise, we'll, we'll let that one go because it's, it's a lot of kind of a mathematical theory there that's probably not worth covering. Um, hmm. I, that's all I've got to say about Trade Wars. Do you have any other thoughts? Not really. It sounds to me like there's a lot of parallels or inspiration for games that would come later on. I didn't realize how closely tied it was to the game Elite, which seems to be the granddaddy of a lot of these concepts. Oh, but, yeah. Uh, I I'm noticing a lot of parallels in not only other space games, but in other games where you trade as well. So. Yeah, exactly. I was thinking a, a couple of them. One is P- Wing Commander Privateer, which I just, oh man, hands down one of my favorite games for space trading, even though I know the first two hours of that game are super punishing and unrewarding. Um, it's as far as I ever made it in there, as much of a fan of Wing Commander as I am. So, yeah. I'm so sorry to admit. Couldn't make it past there. Once you make it past there, oh, I think the game just explodes into wonderful, gooey beautifulness um once you start doing the uh, missions for uh taylor i think her name is and sandoval but yeah that's for another time um and it also influenced games did you ever play hear of one called hard war no i don't think so hard war was really cool um i i really hope um ben 304 you're listening to this episode because that's one of those amazing elite like space trading games that got overlooked it came out in like 2000 maybe, or 99. It was, I think, a European-made um, space trading game, which was just amazing. It had this fantastic sense for, you know, flying off, flying off, pla- do all your trading on planet, flying into deep space, trading on different worlds, blowing up enemies. It was just the same sort of thing as Elite, but done really, really well. Um, but again, single player only. So 
it didn't quite have the same grip as um, you know uh, Trade Wars 2002 does. Does I know that Trade Wars today is still like ravenously played by Trade Wars fans, and they have like weekly and monthly tournaments that go for real money. Um, so it's it's a big deal. Um, now that you mentioned that, I do sort of remember there being tournaments for real money, even back in the BBS days. Exactly, and yeah, that was I never got into that. I was always a free Trade Wars uh, player. I always was into just mm. playing it for fun because I, I always sucked at it, to be honest. It, there were people who were just so perfectly um, so perfectly um, good at the math of figuring out how many jumps you could make before you ran out of fuel in deep space. So uh, I never got that far. Um, I was thinking, I don't have a lot more to say about Trade Wars. Did you ever play Solar Realms or Baron Realms Elite? I played them both, and I'm having oh, cool. trouble deterring. I'm having trouble discerning one from the other. Am I remembering incorrectly that they're essentially like the same game, but one of them was like on a planet, and the other was in space? That's something like that. A hundred percent correct. Solar Realms Elite okay. was the first one. It was all in space. Baron Realms was kind of a post-apocalyptic one that happened on your own planet. Mm-hmm. And... Well, you'll be much better equipped to describe these than I am. Oh, sure. Um, they were basically just more empire building games. Um, they didn't have the kind of graphical, um, experience that I think Trade Wars 2002 really, really had, which was, I say graphical, I mean really cool ANSI art. Um, they were, they were a little bit more basic. So they're just navigating through menus and that kind of thing. So you're buying, you're building, you're building your planet, uh, you're managing your empire. Um, trying to imagine a game like, um, Basically, like civilization in space is the best way I might describe it. You've got to grow enough food to keep your citizens happy. You can make strategic alliances with other empires, that kind of thing. Um, there are some really cool things, though, that it had going for it. For instance, um, it's civilization effectively with 26 players, um, up to 26 players for um, Solar Realms Elite, which is pretty fantastic. Um, you know, you've got a massive, massive empire building game going on with a, a lot of people. So that's a fairly, you know, at the time, idea, the idea of a 26 player game must have been pretty mind blowing. Um, the, uh, it was definitely, and it was inspired by this Atari game called Space Empire Elite, which was itself probably, you know, <laughs> inspired by Elite. Um, but basically the developer, Amit Patel, um, went on to create a color graphics version of it for the BBSs on the IBM. And this is actually a cool story. I don't know if you, do you ever, do you recognize the name Amit Patel? Almost. Or Amit, I don't know. I guess Amit Patel. I think it's Amit. Uh, yeah. Go ahead and tell your story. Maybe it'll ring a bell. Um, I recognize the name because he was one of the people that coined the term for Google, actually. Don't be evil. Oh, you're kidding. Yeah, isn't that bizarre? So a BBS program. No kidding. Yeah, he went on to become one of Google's kind of more important people. Hmm. So, sort of cool. And um, so Baron Realms Elite, imagine SRE, more of the same stuff, except that it's actually programmed by the brother of Amit Patel. Um, and he enabled one thing that I think is totally fucking badass that you never see ever again. Um, and it doesn't even exist today, in my opinion, which is multi-BBS mode. Did you ever see BRE played multi-BBS? Uh, oh, yeah. I, I'll, I never played it, but I totally remember seeing an option for it, like on a BBS door game menu. Yep. Oh, man. Yeah, they would often have three or four different uh, instances of the game, and that would be one of them. Oh, man. That is crazy. It, it is crazy. You could play, I think it was up to 128 players 
um, asynchronously. And the way it would work was um, each BBS would um, separately play its own terms. So you'd all be, for instance, it would be just like um, a normal game where you would all be competing with each other on the same map, except that it would sync its information once a day with all of the other BBSs that it was connected to. So you could effectively create guilds. Um, you could just say, look, we're all in the same BBS. Let's all be, let's all cooperate with each other and compete against this other BBS, which is, you know, on the same uh, planet as us. Um, so it created like awesome, like guild warfare stuff uh, on a massive scale, which I just think is like totally amazing. Uh, and I think that's really one of the only thing that, that, that makes it very, very different from Solar Realms Elite is this ability to be like much, much larger experience. Oh, that's a hell of a difference. So did they kind of do that in, from a, an engineering standpoint, sort of like um, how uh, Fidonet uh, consolidated ah. a bunch of different BBSs together in a message board? I wish I wish I knew. I, as far as I know, I think yes. Because, um, you know, for instance, you wonder how do you deal with conflicting data, right? Um, you know, right. You know, who, who attacks who first? I'm pretty sure the way it worked is since it wasn't based on simultaneity, each BBS itself would have would be a turn in a sense, or let's call it a round, where each BBS has every player takes their turns, and then at some point the BBS says, "Look, we've agreed to go from on this certain pattern. BBS A goes, then BBS B goes, then BBS C goes, then BBS D goes." But I honestly don't know how they dealt with like conflicting data quality, that kind of thing. I would love, I would love if somebody could write in or um, send in a quick voice explanation of how that might have worked, because I never set up a BRE server myself, so I don't even know. Yeah, that's oh, that's very impressive. I don't remember any other door game ever having anything close to that. Although I don't know if I'm remembering wrong that there might have been some trivia games that might yeah. just swap high score tables between bbs's perhaps potentially yeah um yeah i was just thinking uh, the last time i saw that was do you remember in bars I, I was never a big bars person but they used to have this trivia game that you could play like national trivia it was called like oh i can't remember that yeah ntn I ntn do that. yeah that's the one uh, i don't know if that was canada specific or it was u.s um what was it national trivia network or something i guess so and it, 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 I loved that thing. Yeah, me too. It was like, I would actually go to the bar. I wouldn't even really drink much, but I would just be an excuse to play NTN. Yeah, me too. <laughs> it, it was very much kind of akin to a, the BBS trivia sort of a thing where you're, uh, you would ask your server for an NTN console, which would just be like a little remote control kind of a thing. Exactly. It was like a little, like maybe a modem bread box shaped thing that you would tap. And so you would log in first with your name and your password and it would That's right. authenticate you through the national network or something. And you would vote on whichever uh, answer for the trivia question. Exactly. And, uh, and you your, thought was correct. And, and your bar could basically act like a guild and be competing with other bars uh, or you as an individual user could be competing against like the top 10 trivia players. Mm-hmm. That's really funny that you remember that too. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, now I'm wishing there was like a BBS store equivalent of a real world meetup that uh, yeah. had something like this. <laughs> that's awesome. So yeah, that was BRE. Um, and I think that's fantastic. I didn't really write too much down about any other door games. Did you have any other ones in mind? What else did I have? I mean, I had other... All I really had written down was uh, that there were... 
Yeah, just like the trivia games and stuff like that, which were, I'm sure, just easy to uh, easy to program. They didn't need synchronous participation in any way. Just kind of, there'd be a, a bunch of trivia questions that would get asked for, of uh, players that day, and they would answer it, and then you would compare <laughs> at the end of the day what the high score tables were. Maybe it was weekly instead of daily, because it's yeah. not like you could... Uh, yeah, right. It's not like the SysOp would download new questions or anything like that. They might just <laughs> buy the sequel to that game and host that. Yeah. eventually um but for the most part the the less fancy bbs store games would really just encourage the multiplayer participation with a high score table exactly um, yeah. and not quite so much with the player interaction like bre or lord might have had yeah i wish i i kind of knew um i i knew of a couple of games that were definitely influenced by um the bbs store games did you ever play um meridian 59 by any chance or heard of it Oh, wasn't that like an old massively multiplayer game? Yeah, exactly. Um, M fifty nine. Haven't played it. Yeah, it was. I I played it a tiny, tiny bit when it first came out. Um, it was Meridian fifty nine is the world's first MMO, as far as I know. Um, hmm. And it even came out a few months before Ultima Online, maybe even a year. Um, and it was programmed by a really, really wonderful guy um, by the name of um, Oh shit. His last name is Green, but I think it's Brian Green. I can't remember. Um, he goes by the tag, uh, goes by the alias, um, oh shit, psychotic something. But anyway, um, I got I got a chance to talk to him a few times. He was the main programmer of um, Radiant 59, and he mentioned on a podcast I was listening to some time ago, so somebody correct me if I'm wrong, but he took a lot of influence from the multiplayer experiences he was having on MUDs and BBSs um, kind of coming up with the idea of Meridian 59. Yeah. So, well, that's something we didn't talk about and that I never participated in was the multi-user dungeons, MUDs, yeah. and MOOs, and MUSHES, and I don't even know what all of those acronyms stand for. I'm so far removed yeah. from those. I don't know whether you have any experience with those. I, I had a little bit of experience with them. I didn't play a whole lot of them, but I definitely, you know, in the early internet days, well, we might even just, if we have a side episode that's about early multiplayer or something, maybe we should mention MUDs and MUSHES, because, uh, I have a tiny bit of experience with them, and I generally know, um, you know, how they're made, etc. So, yeah. Oh, great! Well, that's a terrific idea for an episode because I have very fond memories of my first multiplayer gaming uh, experiences Me as well. Me too. <laughs> awesome. Well, uh, yeah. I think we've kind of hit the end of our main topic, unless you got some more. Um, the other, th I guess, the last thing that I will mention quickly then sure. was a game that I never played, but I watched some of my buddies play, which was one called VGA Planets. Oh, right. Yeah, and we so... can't forget that one. Yeah, well, I, I may as well forget it because I don't know the first thing about how you play the game. Um, however, all I remember about it that was so unique, like it was a strategy game, which didn't interest me tremendously because that just wasn't really my genre right. of choice. But what I remember seeing when I would go to over a buddy's house, and if, I hope I'm remembering this procedure right, was that they would start up... They would start up the game on the BBS by choosing it from the menu. Yeah. And I think one of the options was, do you have the optional external uh, executable client to play this game? That's yes right. or no? And if you said yes, then I think you would like drop out of your uh, BBS client software to a DOS prompt and you would run <laughs> the VGA Planets game right. and it would sort of capture your user session. And then you kind of had this enhanced multimedia version of this BBS store game that had these really beautiful, I don't know if they were photographs or drawings. I think there were photographs of different planets. That's so right. when you visit a planet, you would see it in glorious VGA. Yeah. Uh, and, the, and the trick was, color. yeah, it wasn't sending any of that information over the modem. It was just actually using your local client um, to do it. I forgot about that. Um, 
there was there was another you know what game used that too was trade wars um trade wars oh. trade wars also had its own terminal called tw term um and it that sure sounds familiar yeah and tw turn had beautiful like you know it had buttons that moved up and down it had proper ANSI animations that kind of thing so yeah and it, and it had automated macros uh i bet you some of the first ma- the idea of macroing in games probably comes out of the bbs store game thing because it would automate certain things where you for instance if you want to buy all of the um all of the things at uh starport it would automate that system so it would just go through the menu and buy everything for you. So yeah, that's really funny. The idea of an external client that you could uh, that you could shell out to. That's awesome. That is cool. I guess strangest of all is that the client is optional. Yeah, exactly. And it was still able to send the same exact same data stream just via a different terminal. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, that's right. Sort of reminds me of those like stick-on joysticks that you can buy for an iPad. You can sort of like <laughs> tilt it left and right, and it simulates you touching your fingers on the iPad instead. Yeah, exactly. Oh, and that's funny. Yeah, I think there were more than yeah. VJ Planets and Trade Wars definitely had their own external clients. I think there may have been more games. For instance, I don't know if do you do you know what Rip Script is? Oh yeah, Rip Graphics. The Rip BBS is like the vector graphics. Exactly. Um, BBS oh, I was is... in such awe of those. Yeah, me too. They supported um, basically 640 by 480 uh, um, VGA um, high. Well, actually, maybe even higher. It might have even been 800 by 600. But it was vector graphics. It would actually send the vector information over the phone line, and your computer would redraw it on your end. Uh, and you would need mm, a special it... client for that. I can't remember what it was called. Like Rip. Rip client. I think it was rip term. Rip term. Yeah, rip term. That's exactly what it was. Mm. And it was. And I think those gorgeous high res graphics were often much much smaller than uh, JPEGs. Exactly. And of course, bitmaps. Oh, because, definitely. Uh, they were vectors. They were just a few mathematical like rays. Yeah, exactly. They were very very simple, and you could send them faster with the phone line. And the graphics looked beautiful. You'd have you had mouse control. That was one big thing. You could actually use a mouse instead of using your keyboard for everything. Mm-hmm. And if, believe it or not, um, Lord actually had a rip version. I'd never played it myself, but I definitely saw it on the BBSs. That's right. I never played it either. I remember it being an option, I think, when you configure your character for the first time. It yeah. asks you what kind you of a terminal you graphics. use, what kind of character sets. Yeah, I've never seen it. Yeah. I would love to. Very I'm going to check cool, YouTube huh? for that. If I find something, I'll put it in the show notes. Oh, that sounds awesome. Well, yeah, mm-hmm. I'm glad you brought up VGA Planets. Do you uh, got anything else? I think that's it for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't the biggest BBS gamer. I mean, I, I would play religiously the same games on my favorite BBSs. Typically, every BBS had... Um, it would have Trade Wars and BRE and SRE and Lord yep. and sometimes Usurper. And you can only start from the beginning so many times. Every time you started that... You know, every time you uh, would start that game on a new BBS, you right. would start from square one. <laughs> so I kind of established myself on a few of them, and I would play it on there, and I would always kind of try... A, a game, uh, at least give it, you know, 15 seconds of courtesy or so to see whether it was something that interested me. And usually it didn't. So I mostly stuck with my favorites. Yeah, me too. How about you? And, and my experience was I was so heavily involved in file trading that this just meant this was time that I wasn't downloading something. <laughs> yeah, that's right. The real star of the show, of course, was the, the, the programs that you would execute on your own computer. Yeah, not exactly. so much the ones, the exactly. lightweight ones that you would play over the network. <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, so I yeah, yeah, that's all I have to say about BBS door games and well, meetups. 
I think that's about it for me, too. We would certainly really, really love to hear anyone else's experiences about meetups and about your experiences with uh, BBS Store Games as well. Um, and uh, we encourage you to get in touch with us either about these topics or anything else that you might be nostalgic about. We'd love to hear from you and to talk about it on the podcast. Yeah, and, so, if, and um, if there's something mm -hmm. that we haven't mentioned uh, that we should mention in a future episode, please just bring up an episode idea. We'd love to hear it. Oh, that's right. That's right. Despite my lack of preparation, we love to be corrected. <laughs> and uh, apologies to trolls. Uh, next week, I will let uh, the whole wide world know how much smarter you are than us with whatever it was that you would correct us about. I wasn't able to find it tapping around while, uh, while I was blathering today. <laughs> that sounds great. So um, why don't I let everyone know how they can get in touch with us? Um, oh, and then I have a little special surprise at the end of that as well. Um, you, you can, of course, reach us on the web at squarefm.demodulated.com. That's where you can uh, get all of our latest uh, podcast episodes, and uh, there's a link to an RSS feed as well as iTunes on there. You can reach us at Twitter at squarewavesfm and uh, by email at squarefm.demodulated.com. Perfect. Um, and something that I have been tinkering with a little bit and have had some limited success with is, in fact, a Telnet BBS that has ah. th uh, three or four games on it. I wish I could get Legend of the Red Dragon to work, but the fact that I'm running a 64-bit operating system and trying to run a 16-bit DOS application has its own host of uh, difficulties. Gotcha. Um, some some of the... Uh, I guess one thing we could have mentioned was that Legend of the Red Dragon, the rights were sold by Seth Robinson to another company right. who's taken it over, and I think they did some uh, minor uh, service patches to the game, but they haven't really uh, modernized it in any way. It's still a DOS executable. That's whereas, too bad. Uh, yeah, whereas um, other door game authors open-sourced their games, and other people uh, converted them often to 32-bit executables, yeah. which means that you can run it on 32- and 64-bit OSs. Oh, uh, that's too so, bad. I know. So I've got Usurper on there. I have a few more that I don't think I've heard of and may not have tried, but um, oh, very, you very can reach cool. us with a... Oh yeah, so you can you can reach us with a Telnet BBS client at squarewaves.zapto.org. So that's z a p t o.org on port 23. I'll put a link to that in our show notes uh, of course, as well as a BBS client. That is amazing. All right. Well, I can't mm. wait to work on the next episode with you. Oh, ditto as always. It's been a real pleasure and uh, we'll uh, come up with uh, some equally compelling topic for next week, no doubt. Sounds good. All right, take care folks. We'll talk to you soon. All right, all the best. So long, everyone. Bye.